Yeah, that's a Britney Spears song. Shame on me. Hey, I did it again. I got too much content, so we're going to split up today. And we're going to have a 10 February 2020A and a 10 February 2020B. The A will be politics. The B will be the fun stuff. So make sure at the end of this podcast, download the next one, uh, which will go straight into news and social media nuggets. I hope you enjoy them. I'm trying to cut them down. There's just too much good shit. Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. On this undisclosed bunker, here's your host. Fortune, you think anybody would have read his kid's book and there wasn't Junior, Donald Trump? No, but what about when he says that Hunter Biden was kicked out of the military? President Bonespurs has the nerve. I mean, the, the. What do you say? You guys are scaring me. I just don't. <laughs> I don't really want to say my opinion today because, like, I do. Like, we're angry we're, today. You're very we're angry. Very and everyone's been very angry backstage, yeah, and I just feel right. like today is maybe a day for me just to be a conservative quietly, <laughs> uh, because I I don't want to get booed and yelled at today. And I have said a yeah, lot. Yeah, but you don't defend him. You don't defend him. We're talking about him. I know, Can but I curse the podium. I, look. There's no decor I'm gonna in there. just just try and just your blood pressure joy just for one second, okay? <laughs> His Gallup approval ratings are the highest since he's That's taken office. That's what we're at. I know at 49 percent today. I watched James Carville. There's actually a clip I've been wanting to play all week um, of James Carville, who uh, created "It's the Economy, Stupid," the famous line right. about Democrats winning and the pathway to success. And he was saying that the candidates right now, it's not good enough that we're losing. And I think people should listen to people like James Carville and Democrats should keep their eye on the ball with these candidates. And no disrespect to Mayor Pete, he did a very perfectly respectable job yesterday, but. But that is not the thing that's going to get you, this guy out of office. Right. Mayor Pete's not going to do it. And no, I know he has a huge fan base, and I know he's surging in New Hampshire. But the messaging, for whatever reason, isn't resonating with the middle of the country like it should. And if I were a Democrat, I would be focusing as hard as possible on the Midwest, on swing states, trying to get Trump out of office by voting him out. Also, that's, that's, that's true. So you didn't say anything that bothered us. You're very upset today, and I don't want to Yeah, but I agree with you, and I'm annoyed that they're not more angry as we are. Great. Let's hear it. I want to hear some passion from Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. I'm disappointed in him in a way, even though I love Joe. I do love Joe, and I think he's such a great guy and such a lovely man Mm -hmm. that Americans will flock to him. But I think that he missed his step by not defending his son. His son Mm -hmm. was the key to turning on Trump. How dare you investigate my son when your children are doing what you said they did. Bluff. He yeah. should have said, you want me to testify? They, Fine. They I'll always, testify and bring in John Bolton. Right. But they yeah. always forget yeah. Bo as well. He's that that the military for, you know, Bo has done that pastor for an extremely long time in the military and died in the military. And I think the idea that all of, you know, Joe's family are just not, you know, serving our country and have served our country in different ways, the comparison, I think, Of course. And we want to hear that. We want to hear yeah. it from them. And these... these and welcome back to Flavor Politic Podcast. It's 10th of February, year of our Lord, 2020. Yeah, I'm going early again. 
<laughs> supposed to be Wednesday, but had eh, enough stuff. Um, we started with the view being angry, and there's a reason. There's a lot of anger, and there's a lot of violence. And if you don't watch, you know, Fox, you're not going to know about it because none of this made the news. None of this is stuff that's really important to our media because they're still trying to figure out how the hell we didn't get rid of Donald Trump. That's their focus. But we'll get that to a second because I missed an anniversary. Our last podcast, which was the 7th, was our four-year anniversary of being a podcast. And even though it's just a little old Bush League podcast on SoundCloud, I looked at the stats and, wow, I was kind of surprised. 402 shows, 20.5 thousand listens. So it's probably more in the 33, 34,000 because we don't pick up anything. Um, some of the other holding sites don't have statistics. And like said on the show, most of the people I talk to, you can't really use SoundCloud. If you're seeing SoundCloud, you actually have more listens than you think you do. Top tracks uh, were FOP 121 and 165. Um, that was like in 2016. FOP 80. Uh, I'm sorry, it's, I read that all fucked up. Top FOP 121 and FOP 80, both from 2016. There we go. Uh, FOP 121 had 165 lessons. Um, I don't see some of the old ones, so there's a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, let's see, 160 lessons for FOP 80. 827.18 had 155 lessons. And... You know, when I post this, once again, I just put up the last one. And then I'll see it in a couple of weeks, and it'll be 20, maybe 30, and then, you know, it goes away. I don't look at the older stuff, so it's kind of impressive that they keep getting listened to. The back catalog gets listened to, uh, which, ver- you know, it basically verifies it's okay for me to be spending 25 bucks a month to keep all my shows online. Because if I didn't, SoundCloud won't let you have but three hours. So I could put a podcast out. It would have to be three hours. It would sit there. And then the next week or the next podcast, that podcast will go away. Um, when I loaded a new one. Top countries were U.S., Germany, and Japan. You know, the majority are U.S., Top listeners, Matt in Oregon, Zach in Tennessee, and D. Arnold, who doesn't appear to be listening anymore. He has uh, 44 listens. Uh, top states, California really surprises me. San Jose, uh, 2,600 listens. Mountain View, 1,100. San Francisco, 1,050. Ashburg, Ashburn and Boynton, Virginia. Chicago and Clifton, New Jersey. Those are the top cities. Um, once again, it's hard for me to see who's listening. I don't, when I pull up the weekly stats, it doesn't say Matt in Oregon is the top listener. It doesn't really show Matt in Oregon. Um, so it's interesting how this, when I did a total life of the podcast, I went back to 2014 when it wasn't a show and, uh, these were the stats. So uh, as I do on the new year's to now, I mean, thank you. Wow. That's a lot of listens, you know, over four years. It's not, 
Ben Shapiro, but you know, for a little old dude doing this in his basement, I'm pretty happy with it. So I thank you all. So our first attack, I don't know if this has sound to it. I'm going to play it. Um, we're going to talk about the Blue Lives Matter because New York had an attack. Um, we, we have a lot of sound bites because there was just, uh, like I said, a lot of attacks. Um, let me see if this has sound. I don't think it does. No. There, there's a video surveillance of them coming by the precinct and you see a guy who goes in and shoots and then comes out and he's got his gun drawn and he looks like he's the bad guy. He's an African American individual and then he gets shot, but they say they don't have the witness. So that's the video I had. It doesn't have any sound but uh very sad and heartbreaking to see our nypd officers being targeted for assassination assault and violence praying for the officers which are injured and all the fine men and women of the greatest police department in the world this war on cops must end new york pd officers shot wounded in an assassination attempt new york police officer nearly escaped to their lives when a gunman fired in the patrol van saturday night wounding one of them in an attack officials call an attempted assassination the ambush which police commissioner dermot shea said should outrage all new yorkers happened just around 8 30 p.m um lucky to be alive this one i have is is viral and i don't know when it's from it's the actual precinct somebody went to the precinct so i don't know if it's a second one or it's a first one um, that didn't get any time, but once again, there's people trying to kill New York City cops. I blame Bloomberg 100% with their catch and release po- policy. And it looks like the PBA agrees with me because here is their spokesman. We're back here in Lincoln Hospital, and we keep hearing the word at our press conference, this was a miracle. We were lucky. Well, we have to stop relying on luck. Some of the same elected officials that are standing at that podium today are talking about how lucky we are. Well, sometimes it's their words that are causing this. We talk about the protesters that are yelling, we want dead cops. Those words meant something. And people listen, and they try to kill cops. But who's leading them? Some of the elected officials that stand here today nodding their heads when we speak are the ones that's leading those crowds, leading those demonstrators, putting the words in those protesters' mouth. Well, now it's real. Twelve hours, two cops shot. Now, we've been warning about this. We've been warning about this since 2012. We warned about it in 2014, and we were ignored, and two cops were killed. We warned it the other day. And what happened? 12-hour time period, we're here in Lincoln Hospital twice because police officers were almost assassinated. They weren't lucky. They were fast. Fortunately, these police officers moved fast. Our officer yesterday threw it in drive and got out of there and then got himself to the hospital. Today, we had police officers in the station house that were lucky enough to be able to dive out of the way. A police officer that was shot was able to shoot back. That's not luck. That's skill. Start backing our police officers, our elected officials that stand and nod with us. It's time you open your mouth and say, this must stop. Albany. I personally tweeted to Bloomberg, who put some bullshit out, and I said, your policies cause this. Your party's pandering hate makes people hate police. The D behind your name is the only reason you're not a national embarrassment and why this isn't national news. Driving cars through Trump tents also ignored 
And I listed all the media because that's our next story because that happened this weekend. And, you know, the New York attack wasn't a big deal. The freaking attack on Trump people, not a big deal. This short story, police arrest a knife-wielding man threatening to assassinate President Trump. 25-year-old Roger Hegpeth on Saturday after allegedly telling a Secret Service associate officer that he was there to assassinate Trump. Uh, the Secret Service officer was patrolling the grounds outside the White House between 15th Street Northwest and Pennsylvania Avenue when Hegpeth made the statement, I'm here to assassinate President Trump. Secret, he said to the Secret Service agent, according to a police report, I have a knife to do it with. Once the suspect was placed under arrest, police found an empty holster for a firearm and a three-and-a-half-inch knife in his sheath. Wasn't big news. We heard every week because America's racist, you know, Obama's totally under attack. No reports of just randos walking up to the White House and uh, saying, I'm going to kill Obama. That didn't happen. Although some crazy as fuck veterans did for when I was in front of the White House say, hey, do you got an RPG? And I just fucking deleted that bigger than shit. Like, are you fucking crazy saying that kind of shit? I'm a white guy. A conservative-leaning white guy in the Obama administration. I'll end up in a gulag. Uh, it was a joke, but... I personally do not want the Secret Service visiting me. I, I just It's this thing I don't want. But poor Secret Service, man. Those guys get overtime now because all these crazy lefties. And here's what I talked about. A fucking lunatic just driving a van into a voter registration booth. And it hit home for me. A man is under arrest in Florida, accused of deliberately driving his van into a tent packed with Trump supporters as they were working to register new Republican voters at a mall parking lot. It happened yesterday afternoon in a shopping center in Jacksonville. The driver narrowly missed the volunteers and fled the scene. He was arrested a few hours later and charged with two counts of aggravated assault and other charges. A 27-year-old man is under arrest and charged with aggravated assault after police say he drove a van into a Republican Party voter registration tent in Jacksonville, Florida on Saturday. No one was hurt, thank goodness. Police say they can't yet say with any certainty whether this was politically motivated, but President Trump tweeted about the incident, writing, Law enforcement has been notified. Be careful, tough guys, who you play with. If, he's, if he was just upset about something else or was politically motivated, anybody interrupts the political process in this country, you know, needs to be taken very seriously. And good evening. I'm Jeff Vallon. Also topping our news tonight, volunteers with the Republican Party of Duval County say they're shaken up after they say the driver of a van intentionally drove through their tent as they registered people to vote today. Detectives with JSO are investigating this as an aggravated assault and criminal mischief. It happened about 2.45 this afternoon in the parking lot of the Walmart at Atlantic and Kernan Boulevards. That's where we find on your side's Kaylee Tracy. Kaylee, just what happened? Well, Jeff, the volunteer who says she was narrowly missed just by a few feet here says she was standing right about here. As you can see, the tent here on her left, she says that that van 
pulled up right about here. She walked up to the van thinking that he would slow down a little bit. She says he thought she thought he maybe he wanted a Trump bumper sticker. Instead, he accelerated, she says, through this tent. And she says she only got out of the, out of the way because one of the other volunteers yelled for her to move. Now, according to detectives, they're looking for an older 80s brown Chevy van with a yellow stripe down the bottom of that van. Witnesses say the man driving was white in his early 20s with brown hair and is thin. They also say that he recorded the incident on his phone and gave them the middle finger before flying away through this parking lot, they tell us. And JSO says intelligence detectives are now on scene investigating because deputies say, again, they're not 100% sure if this is politically motivated, but tell us, quote, as you heard at the top of the story, anybody that interrupts a political process in this count in this country needs to be taken very seriously. And as for those volunteers, they say they feel targeted. I thought he was going to slow down, but he didn't. He gunned his engine and headed straight. We're, we're all Americans. This is America. When, when did violence become the answer just because I don't agree with you? That, that's... Not national news. Florida said a Saturday that a man deliberately ran a vehicle in a tent of Republican voters who were registering people to vote. Jacksonville police say a driver intentionally crashed a van through a tent where Duval County GOP volunteers were registering voters. The Florida Times Union reported several Duval County GOP volunteers were working at the registration tent when a white man in his early 20s driving an older, possibly 80s brown van pulled up towards the tent. Duval County GOP concluded the Republican Party of Duval County planned to redouble its effort to register voters and will tend its fight with renewed intensity to re-elect President Trump. Attempted mass murder of Trump supporters, other articles, six innocent Trump campaign volunteers were almost killed today by what appeared to be a Democrat extremist as he plowed the vehicle into them in the voter registration tent. From ABC News, a man was arrested Saturday after investigators at the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office said he drove a van in a tent belonging to Republicans. Gregory William Lowell Tim, 27, faces multiple charges, including two counts of aggravated assault on a person 65 years of age or older, one count of criminal mischief and driving with suspended license. On Saturday afternoon, police responded to Walmart at 11900 Atlantic Boulevard in Kernan Village after witnesses called 911. Witnesses told JSO that a man in his 20s driving an older brown Chevy van pulled up to the tent before driving through, running over their tables and chairs. Volunteers Republican Party were registering people to vote somebody's byline. They're still not willing to say it was political. None of the reports I saw were political. Duval County GOP put it up. Pictures. Guy just trashed everything. Just June. I second that emotion. This is my favorite part of the article. Though it is unsure if the crash was politically motivated. Alrighty then. The left continues to be the thing they try to accuse the right of. Violent, activist, hateful criminals. True. Lenny Curry, sadly this happened. I spoke to GOP chair. This is outrageous. The hate is toxic and dangerous. Thankfully, no one was injured, but certainly they are shaken after being targeted because they were registered voters. I've spoken to sheriffs, and of course, his team's on it. I had an op-ed on this. Because why it hit home, for me, was Saturday I went into town to get groceries. And there was a Trump bus with a trailer attached to it. It's the official Trump bus. All right, looks like the president could have been there. And I pulled up, and I got out, and I walked in to see what they what they were selling. They were selling shirts, hats. It's basically just donation stuff. You can donate, just monetary. 
tour in the country. And it was on the side of town, I, I guess we would um, term as more progressive, you know, the rich people, prepsters, hipsters, things like that. And I got out and I, I asked the wife, you know, because I stepped out of this little trailer, it's like a 20-foot long trailer, and I said, hey, you want a shirt or something? I mean, I don't know if you, you want something. And she goes, no, people just attack us, and you need to get away from that fucking bus. And so I got in my car and I drove away because she was right. It was a huge magnet that if some psycho wanted to do something, they could do it. And then the very next day, some psycho did something. So my op-ed was covering the myriad of things that, you know, we've gone through with uh, people saying you should attack Republican people, not let them be in public to baseball shooting to every fucking journalistic network and I air quoted calling everybody racist and sexist and we have to impeach him or else he'll get elected and if he gets elected we'll lose the democracy he's shredding the constitution and firing these people up to a frenzy just a frenzy yet you never hear about it when there's violence they don't even report it they don't report it. ABC and CBS never reported it. NBC had it online. CNN ignored it. MSNBC ignored it. But I don't need to because Red State, Stephen Miller, he, he sums it up. Going on a limb and suggestive a mega hat wearing yokel driving a van through a Warren or Sanders voter registration tent it would be the only thing journalists and major news outlets would be talking about right now. There would be clearing graphite off the roof at CNN right now. There would be Charlottesville comparison. Jim Acosta would chain himself to White House fence. Tapper would be demanding Kellyanne Conway personally accept responsibility. And Frito would be quote tweeting people with 12 followers for saying something bad. There would be five New York Times op-eds about Trump's State of the Union speech was the motivation. NBC reporters would be scouring 4chan. Washington Post front page would read terror in Jacksonville. Candidates would be gathering for candlelight vigils. Jacksonville and defeat hate would be the top trends on Twitter. Every celebrity with a political following would be make Hitler comparisons. Seltzer and Darcy would be blaming some Fox and Friends segment because that's what Media Matters would be doing. There would be marches. But, of course, there's none of that. And you don't have to like Trump to notice this. You just have to have a pulse. He's spot on. Spot the fuck on. It would be national. It would be never-ending. They would link it. The 4chan is literally what MSNBC and NBC did on Iowa, we'll see it in that quick section today because we're just hitting it briefly and going to news and social media nuggets. It would, it, this is what they'd be doing. But they're not. Nor, because it just keeps, it's, it's the gift you don't want that keeps coming. There's Portland and Antifa.
Me. They're throwing actually throwing rocks at me, man. I hear you. in Portland. Total fucking mess. Carbon Sabina, Anna Falili attempted to murder a woman. The police did not lift a finger to help her arrest anyone. Portland has been taken over by Antifa. Andy NGO, video recorded by Antifa writer Shane Burley, shows the mob harassing, assaulting, and pepper spraying local citizen journalist Brandon Brown. Brown was attacked and robbed by Antifa militants for recording them Olympia in December. The KKK had announced it was going to hold a rally in Portland, but three hours before it was set to kick off, it was canceled. That left a whole lot of individuals wearing all black and armed with baseball bats and pepper spray with a thirst for violence and nowhere to direct it. So why not the cops and journalists? Portland police. Listen to how they write this, because remember, they call the police chief a white supremacist, and she's black. Some demonstrators are exhibiting aggressive behavior toward individuals who are lawfully filming in the area. Some demonstrators possess weapons, including bats and pepper spray. Criminal activity will not be tolerated. Criminal activity will not be tolerated. Is there a new mayor in Portland and not Ted Wheeler? Some individuals wearing all black have observed throwing projectiles using pepper spray on others near Lounsdale Square. If you are a victim of a crime, call 911. PBB will arrest those identified engaged in criminal acts. Byline. Wearing all black, exhibiting aggressive behavior, throwing projectiles and pepper spray, even though no one from the Klan actually showed up, who could it be? They're not going to call them Antifa. PBB officers have made two arrests subject to engaging in criminal activity. Some members of the crowd are throwing objects at the officers. What appears lit flares are being thrown in the roadway near Loudon Square. This is a crime. If anyone has information about these individuals, call 911. Several subjects were observed actively defacing a monument with Chapman Square Park, which what appears to be spray paint. PBS officers arrested one of the subjects for vandalism. And the NGO. The Portland Lanifah rally against KKK is just another pretext to attack journalists. There are mass people with weapons in downtown hurling shit. Repeat after me, Susan C. Antifa. They're not simply some individuals wearing all black. Why do you allow Ted Wheeler to make police look so incompetent? Dan Larson. Some of us call the slugs Antifa. Others. I wonder who those in all black could be. Well, probably never know. It's Antifa. Identify them. You know who they are. Fucking communists. 
Some individuals wearing all black. I wonder who that could be. You need to arrest your Marcus, Marxist mayor who's enabling them. Your trash city is starting to turn into something like Mad Max. Your lack of description shows you're complicit in an Antifa tax on Portland citizen. The name of the terrorist group running your city and attacking your citizen is Rose City Antifa. Ted Wheeler is a member of Antifa. He allows the city to be run by mass terrorists. So just an excuse to play brown shirts in Stuhlenberg. We know who the real fascists are. Brown shirts in Nazi Germany. German Nazi Party, a paramilitary organization whose methods of violent intimidation played a key role in Adolf Hitler's rise to power. This is the very reason they're supposed to be attacking people. I am sure they are assaulting journalists in a very egalitarian and totally non-fascist way. And the NGO has happened in December in Olympia. The KKK or neo-Nazis showing up claim turned out to be a hoax. The Antifa mob, disappointed that they had no one to fight, direct violence at journalists, law enforcement, and property instead of... Instead, today in downtown Portland. And I love this one. Meet the American coronavirus. They take control of American streets, hide their identity, and attack American citizens with pepper spray, urine, liquid cement, and so on. Why are they not classified as domestic terrorists yet? And to show that it just wasn't in the continental United States, PETA had their own people taking sledgehammers to vehicles because 150 dogs have died in the Iditarod. And they were dressed up as furries. Instead of all this, this was viral on Twitter. The rude pundit, and, and this is just horseshit. I'm sure Matt in Oregon, who's a mechanic, could call it out. Pal of mine goes to his regular auto mechanic to get some repairs on Tuesday. It's at a car dealership he's been using for years. He's a liberal in the middle of Tennessee. His car has a couple of anti-Trump stickers on it. When he picks up his car, this has been left in it. More precisely, a couple of flyers were left, and all his radio stations have been changed to conservative talk. Needless to say, my pal was pissed off. He bought cars from the place, used it for service all the time. They had no problem taking his Trump-hating money. Now the ending of this 
when he went back to the place yesterday to speak to someone about it. The owner was pissed off about it, too, totally apologetic and enraged that one of his employees would do that. Again, this is the middle of Tennessee. The owner told my pal, you know, I'm so fucking sick of Trump. My pal agreed and told me, I don't get what they want. They won. Trump got away with it. We don't have to love him. I said that they want to rub our faces in it. That's the real pleasure for them. We both said that back when Bush was president, we could still communicate with his voters. We could talk and argue and even have friends who supported Bush. Now, though, it's impossible to communicate with Trump supporters. That's because you're in the cult and you're an enemy. This is the end result of media poison of Rush Limbaugh to Fox News to Facebook and other social media madness. It's not enough to disagree. You have to hate anyone who could dare question Trump, and they should receive condemnation and attack and death threats. Imagine making up a liberal friend in Tennessee just so you could dunk on Rush Limbaugh who has stage four cancer, was the first reply. It's horseshit. And you know why it's horseshit? I live here. I live here. I never heard of this. This would be news. Our media is anti-Trump. This would be news. He goes on to say, my pal ended up thanking the owner for at least expressing concern and for apologizing. That's what you do in a medium-sized town of Tennessee. He hopes the offended mechanic is fired because, you know, fuck that guy. He did say that he's worried about anything else having been done to his car. The owner said that if he felt anything was off to bring the car back, it's kind of terrorism, isn't it? Making you wonder if your engine will blow up, your brakes won't work. You know, it's not absurd to think that the end game of making America great again is the elimination of all of us, all of us, who can see through Trump. And the fact that we can entertain that thought means we may already be too far down the road to stop it. I can tell a lot of mega cretins who comment here aren't reading the entire thread. You don't have to believe it happened. I know that mega fucks don't believe a lot of shit that's real. So, hey, I'll join, join climate change and Trump's an idiot in that category. Holy shit, you mega mites are so triggered. That's sad. My friend dealt with this, this calmly without trying to ruin the business. He thought it was fucked and told me about it and said he didn't mind if I tweeted it. If someone did this to you with Obama, that's fucked too. Carl Gustav, you want to go viral, so buck up. <laughs> the morning spoo. Your friend is totes a good guy. He just wanted to get a mechanic fired for a piece of paper. Editor's note. This is where your to- story totally jumps the shark. Future fanfic. Please use less melodramatic for better believability. Thank you. Because <laughs> it's true. That didn't happen. I don't know about it. I would. Nashville would have sent somebody out there. If this was remotely true, it would have been reported. But it's not true. And to say that you want to, that Trump supporters want to end people after the litany of attacking violence that I just played. And that Trump people want to silence people. Oh, really? Well, here's Benny. They made a video. Nancy Pelosi is personally calling for this video to be taken down. Members of Congress are screaming that it's doctored. Leftists are furious about it. My team at TPUSA made this video. The president shared it. This is a very scary moment. First, watch the video. Here's how we made it. We took real lines to the President's State of the Union speech and then used real footage of Speaker Pelosi tearing up Trump's speech as a transition for each clip. That's it. Real event that really happened and a timeline. 
taking real footage of things that happen and placing that footage together in a timeline is literally how you create news packages, sports highlights, documentaries, instant replay. This is called a package. Everything in perfect sequence is called upon live stream facts. Trump gave us a great speech. Pelosi ripped up Trump's speech. And the document Pelosi ripped up were printed, powerful, inspirational American stories and names of the heroes who gave their lives for this country. Pelosi literally ripped up powerful American stories. The president, president, precedent set here is horrifying. Would you call a Super Bowl highlight reel doctored because the footage of the big play, it did not show every play before and after sequence? Is a noon package, news package doctored when they clip just a small part of the politician's speech? No. Question. So how and why did President share this video on F- Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter? A. Because it is great content and shows in real terms what Speaker Pelosi was ripping up. This is not the first time he has shared our content. And I doubt it'll be the last. Our video's not doctored. Our video's not deep fake. Our video's not misinformation. Leftists demanding our video to be stripped from the internet ultimately amount to an egregious, totalitarian desire to control their image and the narrative. Nothing more. And that's scary. Yet our establishment media run coverage for these totalitarian leftists with headlines like doctored and edited. It's disgusting. It's wrong. It's, it's a horrifying precedent. If this video is doctored, then legitimately, legitimately every piece of media on the internet is doctored. Every time they bash Trump, it's doctored. Because they end the last sentence of what he says, or the sentences before, in the case of all Mexicans are murderers and rapists. Something he never said. WAPO, Trump shared an edited Pelosi video. Um, powerful American story ripped. Pelosi versus a Facebook attack. CNBC. Newsweek. Democrats asked Twitter, Facebook to remove Trump doctored clip of Pelosi. Deceptive effort to mislead and manipulative. Wall Street Journal. Journal. Edited video. Pelosi ripping Trump's speech renews debate over manipulated content. Benny continues, don't let the totalitarian censors win. Fight back. Pelosi does not want you to see this video simply because it shows how petty and insulting her act was at the State of the Union. That should make you want to share our video even more. Whenever Democrats want something taken down, it's to do damage control. It's a PR move. When Dems go on the attack of others viciously, it means they fear the corruption being exposed, so they try to discredit the source outing them. George T., we all know she's someone's mother and grandma. I don't care if she did or didn't become wealthy because of her corruption or even if she didn't corrupt. Just that this woman is, is as low on the chain of life as they could be. Hillary is above her. Of course she wants to take it down. We want her taken down. Another one. Reality is a hard thing for Democrats to face. Once the Durham report comes out, there's going to be faced with another reality. Nancy Pelosi will probably want that torn up too. After Benghazi, I hope you keep this video up forever. May Pelosi rot in hell. Campaign ad in seven to eight months. Representatives. Representative Ro Khan. Twitter must take this video down. Drew Hamill. The American people know that the president has no qualms about lying to them. Forbidable Finney. There's nothing misleading about this. This is an example of how each individual was treated by Speaker Pelosi. She doesn't get to pick and choose who she rips up. Washington Post Online. Trump shared an edited Pelosi video. 
Wow, Turning Point USA edited the video. That's crazy. That's even crazier is that tomorrow night's the Oscars, which is our This is America Today. There's a whole bunch of editing. They give them an award for it. Here's how they wrote it. Dave Carr from Media and Public Affairs Professor at George Washington University said the video was clearly meant to be misleading. We all know the difference between editing something to make it more clear and editing something to make it more deceptive. While the clip edit may not violate Facebook or Twitter's policies, Karp said the video should still draw public outrage as gross and disturbing and a sign is what probably more to come. This is the stuff we're probably going to be wading through for the next nine months. It's not the technology of deep fakes we should be worried about. It's going to be garbage like this spread through Trump microphone and amplified by the rest of the conservative media apparatus. Byline to the article. Yeah, the good professor doesn't sound at all biased. Was he? Has he seen Joe Biden's latest attack video? Oh, we're going to play that in a second. Benny, Nancy Pelosi is personally calling for this video to be taken down. Members of Congress are screaming that it's doctored. Leftists are furious. Retweet and let it keep playing. So I did whenever I saw it yesterday. And now I'll play it on the air. Charles is one of the last surviving Tuskegee Airmen, the first black fighter pilots, and he also happens to be Ian's great-grandfather. Tonight we have a very special surprise. I am thrilled to inform you that your husband is back from deployment. He is here with us tonight, and we couldn't keep him waiting any longer. I can proudly announce tonight that an opportunity scholarship has become available. It's going to you and you will soon be heading to the school of your choice. I will be with you again, he wrote to Gage. I will teach you to ride your first bike, build your first sandbox, watch you play sports, and see you have kids also. I love you, son. Take care of your mother. I am always with you, Daddy. On Easter Sunday of 2008, Chris was out on patrol in Baghdad when his Bradley fighting vehicle was hit by a roadside bomb. That night, he made the ultimate sacrifice for our country. To Kelly and Gage, Chris will live in our hearts forever. He's looking down on you now. Thank you. In 2017, doctors at St. Luke's Hospital in Kansas City delivered one of the earliest premature babies ever to survive. Today, Ellie is a strong, healthy two-year-old girl sitting with her amazing mother, Robin. In the gallery, Ellie and Robin, we are glad to have you with us tonight. (laughs) 
I am proud to announce tonight that you will be receiving our country's highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. The unemployment rate for African Americans, Hispanic Americans, and Asian Americans has reached the lowest levels in history. African-American youth unemployment has reached an all-time low. African-American poverty has declined to the lowest rate ever recorded. The unemployment rate for women reached the lowest level in almost 70 years, and last year women filled 72 percent of all new jobs added. The veterans' unemployment rate dropped to a record low. The unemployment rate for disabled Americans has reached an all-time low. Our agenda is relentlessly pro-worker, pro-family, pro-growth, and most of all, pro-American. The state of our union is stronger than ever before. Unfucking believable. It just shows her ripping it in between the people. That's how they doctored it. But do you notice how that's what they use for everything when you catch PPFA saying they're chopping up babies like a fucking car place and selling off parts? That was doctored. Nobody ever said the 47% was doctored. Maybe the right needs to use that for now. That's doctored. That's edited. That's this. Because the videos the left put together, grabbing the pussy, are those? Those came from Moses. They were handed down, man. They, they are the God's truth. They will freak out about this, but they won't freak out about these two sound bites. One is Warren literally nodding her head, nodding her head when a questioner slandered APAC as the unholy alliance of Islamophobes, anti-Semites, and white nationalists, perpetuating bigotry. And Talib and Omar, there were moments triggering, and I kept holding her hand, and we intentionally sat next to each other to support each other. Rashida Talib said she had to hold hands with Ilian Omar for the triggering moments. The whole world said, uh, yeah, if you're triggered, why are you a congressperson? I'm an American 
Jew, and I'm terrified by the unholy alliance that APAC is forming with Islamophobes and anti-Semites and white nationalists. And no Democrat should legitimize that kind of bigotry by attending their annual policy conference. And I'm really grateful that you skipped the APAC conference last year. And so my question is if you'll join me in committing to skip the APAC conference this March. Yeah. No, I think it was a huge struggle for me because I don't think people realize it's worse in, in when you're actually there versus what you – no, it really is. It's – it's it actually – there was moments of triggering, and I kept holding your hand, and we intentionally sat next to each other to support each other. But I, I remember – And so when um, – when we think about it now in, in Congress, we're having a conversation about cross-border um, uh, negotiations happening for, for uh, workers because all of our destinies are tied together. When you see a, a Somali refugee or an Iraqi refugee or a Libyan refugee, we often are like, oh, this is my neighbor. They must have survived some struggle. We don't ever pause to think what American policy made them come over here. <laughs> right? When, <laughs> when, when you see a, a, a flooding happening um, in, in, in a country abroad and you are um, urgently raising money for the, these lives to be saved, you don't think about how have I contributed to the climate warming that has led to um, these these flight, uh, floodings and these catastrophes that are taking place abroad. And so when we are uh, now thinking about a, 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 a new way of reimagining a vision of what our foreign policy should be, um, and as I will introduce next week, our, our pathway to peace um, in, in, in um, thinking about the world, it is important for us to have these connections between what sanctions could mean for um, the, the destruction of life. That second part was Omar literally saying it's America's fault there's flooding in the world. Flooding. And I know it's an apple and an orange. But we're going to freak out about something that really happened that's edited to make Nancy Pelosi look bad, which is what the left does in all their political ads. That's going to make us flip the fuck out. But we're not going to flip out over people being totally anti-Semite, being triggered by a speech... And saying the United States is to blame for all flooding in the world. It's our fault. Really. You want to go with that? I mean, I, I, I don't think you should go with it. After that, you know, at the same time, NPR rolled out a whole thing about how um, Islamophobia is making people hate those two, not their shitty politics. There was another one of those resurfaced op-eds about it's just conservatives are pieces of shit. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, we were gonna stick with music breaks being things that don't fit in the show, but I actually found a show, and I, my viewers may hate me now, our listeners, uh, I watched Saturday Night Live just to see what I could put in the show, cause RuPaul was there. Yeah, I got a soundbite. And, uh, Justin Bieber was on, and hate me for it, but something about the music in this, 
this song I kind of like, so I'm going to play some modern type music. And then when we come in, it's the Saturday Night Massacre. That's what they called it. When the President of the United States finally did what he should have done forever ago and get rid of disloyal, dishonest pieces of shit. And oh, the media didn't like it. My mom was forced to just get out of a situation that wasn't the safest. Education is really important to me, and it is for my mom. I didn't know how to ask for help. I just want other people to have a place where they can go to and talk to each other. We are on the edge of Skid Row, where poetry met me back in 2000. I'm here now, because this fear now, I say to myself, is real now. So let's deal now. Is that true? That's true. It's amazing. Hi, how are you? <laughs> I'm just 
Hello, how are you? We thought we would um get you some studio time so that you could be able to put out your message and do what you feel called and led to do. So it's on now. I came here to achieve my success. Was told I would be blessed till I attest to street life distress. Now I lay me down to sleep on this pillow of concrete. Everyone has a story, and it motivated me to keep going. We need. We all need people like you to do what you're doing. Yeah, so I live in Koreatown, and I go to school all the way in Northridge because I didn't um, um, get my car. It was really difficult to um, commute. What if I told you that you wouldn't have to worry about that anymore? Media Bubble, one podcast at a time. Here's Tony Reed. depend now on what uh, uh, the Department of Defense, the U.S. military, he's in, he's in the Army, what they do about, uh, about Lieutenant Colonel Vindman and his twin brother, what, what kind of positions they get, are they effectively sidelined, or do, are they allowed to pursue their military careers? My understanding is they have to go and return to the Pentagon, but obviously there's a concern if they will be sidelined and they aren't going to be able to achieve what their potential is. But I think all of this shows that we need an independent prosecutorial agency in our government to investigate the president and officials and not leave that to the Senate and Congress. We obviously have not been successful in holding this president to account. I'm proud of our accomplishments. Our work here has been the highlight of my career. So this is some pretty astonishing news tonight. Comes just off of the heels of, as you guys have been discussing, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman also escorted off of White House grounds Earlier. Yeah, it's a major development. And remember, uh, Ambassador Gordon Sunderland, he, before he became ambassador, he gave a million, one million dollars to the Trump inaugural committee. Uh, and that was just part of what's going on. Let's go to Jim Acosta over at the White House. Uh, yeah. Jim, has the White House now confirmed all this uh, that in addition to uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman and his brother Eugene Vindman, now Gordon Sunderland, the ambassador, the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, is out? Wolf, I will tell you, officially the White House is not commenting. They are only saying they will not talk about personnel matters. I can tell you, though, from talking to my sources this evening, uh, that, you know, this, this is a cleaning of house. Uh, and this comes from the top. Uh, and there's just no other way around it. Uh, you know, there, there has been some talk in recent weeks that the NSC would be doing some downsizing, and there was some talk that perhaps the White House could attach uh, what happened to Vindman and his brother uh, to that effort. Obviously, you can't do that with Gordon Sunland. Gordon Sunland gave perhaps the most devastating testimony during the impeachment inquiry when he said there was a quid pro quo. And so it does seem at this point, and I was talking to a, a lawmaker on one of the relevant committees in this investigation just a short time ago about this, the expectation among some of the lawmakers who have been looking into this, Wolf, is that the president and his team are going to be going after 
each and every individual who you know got in their crosshairs during the length of this saga, and that includes Gordon Sunland. I, I will also pass along one other thing, Wolf. I, I just uh, got off the phone in the last several minutes with a source uh, close to the president. Uh, this is a, an advisor who speaks to him from time to time who said, if you expect the president to change the way he handles these sorts of things, he's not. Uh, this is not somebody who is going to change how he operates. And so this is fully in character, uh, this source was saying uh, just a few moments ago, with how the president operates, how he acts, how he behaves. And so I think we can con continue to see the president carrying out uh, these acts of retribution in the days to come. He clearly has not learned uh, the kind of lesson that uh, Republican Senator Susan Collins and others were talking about earlier this week. The only lesson that the president appears to have taken from all of this is that he has escaped impeachment, and now he can go after his enemies, real and imagined. Wolf. It's a significant development. Uh, it's a Friday night uh, already, and and three officials. Uh, Friday night uh, massacre, it seems. Yeah, that's what I'm sure that people are going to start calling that. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, uh, his brother Eugene Vindman, his twin brother, both U.S. Army officers, they're out, and now Gordon Sunland. Uh, the U.S. ambassador to the European Union is out as well. Samantha Vinograd used to work at the National Security Council during the Obama administration. Let me play a clip. Uh the media fucking flipped. They just flipped over this. How many people did Obama fire? How many generals? Anybody? Do you remember? It was a shit ton. Mediaite rolls out. Uh, Democrats blast Trump's uh, firing of people who spoke out against him. Schumer, the Pentagon assured me that patriots and whistleblowers like Tinnaker and Vilman will be protected. Any reprisal against them or others who came forward to tell the truth are wrong and should be seen for what they are. An extension of Trump's cover-up. Adam Schiff. Vindman did his job as a soldier in Iraq, received Purple Heart, blah, blah, blah. He's a piece of shit. Tammy Baldwin. Vindman's a patriot. Yeah, because you're a Democrat, but everybody else doesn't think that. Chris Murphy, surviving impeachment after openly selling out to the nation's security to destroy the political opponents, has made him bulletproof. Mark Warner. This is just a disgraceful way to treat a man who has spent his life serving his country. Chris Coons. Vinman serves his country honorably. Sheldon Whitehouse, the man in the Oval Office, proves himself the smallest man alive. Represented Roe Conn again. Congress has failed to hold the president accountable, which is why we need an independent corruption agency to investigate and prosecute officials in the executive branch. The Trump administration appears to be taking revenge on Vinman. It's appalling, but make sure when we make that, it's all Democrats. Kind of like the election, FEC. Yeah. I'm disappointed in Trump. Arr! Danny Hicks, shameful, doesn't begin to describe President public retaliation. You yeah, know, this is what presidents get to do. If you've lost faith, him and Sondland got the boot. If you lose faith in those people, if they're disloyal, you get rid of them. <laughs> Obama did it. Nobody had a problem with it. Obama fired all the Bush holdovers. Most presidents do. Trump's the first to not. He should have cleaned fucking house. So the State of the Union acquittal, prayer breakfast, it went on. I just, before we get into it, because it's soundbite intensive, I want to flashback when a journalist speculated on having sex with Obama. This, this is our media. 
To use a massive understatement, journalists are fans of Donald, not, are not fans of Donald Trump. It's quite the contrast to how they cover Barack Obama. Sometimes people forget just how much they liked him such as the media personalities who speculated on having sex with them. It was 11 years ago this week, on February 5th, 2009, that the New York Times website published a piece on fantasizing about sex with the Democrat. New York Times domestic disturbance blogger Judith Warner wrote, The other night I dreamt of Barack Obama. He was taking a shower right when I needed to get into the bathroom to shave my legs. I launched an email inquiry. Many women, not surprisingly, were dreaming about sex with the president. This is, as you can imagine, a bit different than comparing Trump to Hitler. (laughs) Over 27 years ago, in 1992, Times senior writer Walter Shapiro discussed American libido and sex dreams about Bill Clinton. Cheryl Russell, editor of the Bloomer Report, a monthly newspaper on consumer trends, captures a new dimension in the national national psyche when she confides, every woman I know is having sex dreams about Bill Clinton. We're finally getting a president of our own age. We can imagine having sex with them. Diane Sawyer, after a pepperoni pizza and a banana milkshake once, I dreamt about Bill Clinton. So that's how they covered that. The New York Times, after much consternation, finally did an article this week. Black workers' wages are finally raising. Yeah. New York Times published a rather shocking article for Sunday newspaper online. The headline was an attention grabber. Black workers' wages are finally raising. Their pay is increasing after a decade of stagnation. One man's story shows the hope. It took forever. For them to finally cover it. Republicans boast massive online fundraising off impeachment, 117 million, but we're still getting stories about 60 for Nancy because she's so good. Fox News crushed everybody. Are we surprised? I'm not going to go into the data. But the media wasn't done. No class. ABC, CBS attack Rush Limbaugh for bigoted rhetoric and racism. The move drew ire from Democrats and advocates. Things took a sour night when the lead in Ella Torres story and a night full of divisive moments. President Trump, blah, 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 more of the same. Limbaugh has made numerous derogatory comments about minorities, AIDS community, and LGBT, and it was just, we kept on churning them out. Churning them out. During all these little incidents we cover in the last podcast comes this article. CNN continuously labeled President Donald Trump's White House speech vindictive before deeming it vulgar and chirons. While Trump delivered his speech, CNN aired the graphic Trump vindictive at an impeachment acquittal celebration. CNN updated the graphic during Brooke Baldwin's 2 p.m. hour. It read then, Trump vindictive and vulgar and impeachment acquittal celebration. Following the speech, White House correspondent John Harwood called President Trump's word a very disturbing tableau for the country, somebody in deep psychological stress. Yeah. Pompous Jim Acosta came on. The truth gets under your skin. Liberal CNN journalist Jim Acosta appeared at Point Park University on Thursday to lecture on how his truth-telling gets under your skin. 
Acosta has explained his worry that President's comments could lead to violence against the press, according to the story of the Pitt News. The concern I have is that if you have a situation here in the U.S. where journalists are seriously injured or killed, we cease being the United States of America we grew up with. It's a variation on his 2018, the moment that there's a dead journalist on the side of the highway. <laughs> Here's fucking CNN. Is CNN breaking news. All right, Brianna, thank you so much. Hi there, I'm Brooke Baldwin. You are watching CNN. Thank you for being with me. President Trump acquitted and unleashed this Thursday afternoon, making his very first comments on camera after his four-month-long impeachment saga came to an end. President Trump talking a victory lap, riffing on everything from that perfect phone call with his counterpart in Ukraine uh, on impeachment. Pardon my French. This is a direct quote from the president. It's all bullshit. Uh, Again, attacking Senator Mitt Romney and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi on their faith getting his legal team a standing ovation, saying Congressman Steve Scalise, and I quote, is better looking after having been shot, and commenting on Jim Jordan's body. In case you missed it, here you go. We've been going through this now for over three years. Uh, It was evil. It was corrupt. It was dirty cops. Uh, It was leakers and liars. And this should never, ever happen to another president, ever. It was a disgrace. Uh, Had I not fired James Comey, who was a disaster, by the way, uh, it's possible I wouldn't even be standing here right now. I've done things wrong in my life, I will admit. Not purposely, but I've done things wrong. But this is what the end result is. You have to understand, uh, we first went through Russia, Russia, Russia. It was all bullshit. We then went through the Mueller report. And they should have come back one day later. They didn't. They came back two years later after lives were ruined. Adam Schiff is a vicious, horrible person. Nancy Pelosi is a... He joined with Republicans and Democrats to pray for divine guidance for this nation. The mood was described at the time as solemn and reverential. This past week, President Trump used the event, the National Prayer Breakfast, to attack the sincerity of the faiths of Republican Senator Mitt Romney and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, both of whom supported the president's impeachment and removal from office. I don't like people who use their faith as justification for doing what they know is wrong. Nor do I like people who say, I pray for you, when they know that that's not so. Both Romney, a devout member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and Pelosi, a Catholic, have said that their faiths guided them during these difficult political times. In December, after the president first questioned Pelosi's sincerity, the speaker explained to me what she means when she says she prays for President Trump. I do pray for him because he is the president of the United States, and I pray that God will open his heart uh, to meeting the needs of people in our country. I pray for his health and for his safety and for his family. I do all the time. The notion that any person of faith would pray for her political opponents or or even her enemies, that's a central tenet of Christianity. 
It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. Nonetheless, the president's son tweeted, quote, likelihood of Nancy Pelosi praying for Trump is about the same as the likelihood of Satan running around quoting the scriptures, unquote. Of course, in the book of Matthew, Satan not only quotes scripture, he quotes scripture to Jesus. Everyone's faith is different. But as a person of faith, to me, nothing could be more indicative of a distance from the humility and love that so many of us get from religion than the act of using a unity prayer breakfast to attack the faith of others. Demonstrating instead of humility and love, ego and vengeance and spite. And to hear Mitt Romney explain it, it really comes from a genuine place of conviction where he searched his soul. He said essentially that he was looking for a reason to acquit, but he couldn't. And part of that was because he had really an oath to God that he couldn't move past that without feeling like he was breaking that to acquit the president. I was struck by just what a dark place this was in this speech. Other speeches uh, in history strike a somber tone, strike a conciliatory tone, strike a forward-looking tone. This was so dark, Nia. Yeah, and and surprising. I mean, not surprising that the president uh, can be vindictive, uh, can be petty, uh, can be, uh, you know, frame himself as as the victim and want to air grievances all the time. But it felt like this was a real moment, right, Uh, where he could have some focus on a forward-looking message for the country, a borrow from some of the themes uh, and the hope from the State of the Union. Republicans certainly are received that very well. But here he was talking about Bill Clinton, talking or, or, or Hillary Clinton, talking uh, about the FBI agents, Lisa, uh, Lisa Page and, and, and Peter uh, Strzok. So it was very, very uh, bizarre and in some ways a, a missed opportunity. Listen, he spent a lot of time yesterday having to uh, look at Mitt Romney on screen all day and give that very passionate address where he talked about his faith and, and really in, in some ways dismantled the Republican uh, arguments uh, against uh, in impeachment and removing the president from office. So here, this was just a, a long and, and rambling uh, speech. I, I, you know, as, as I was watching, I was like, this is sort of like a, a session you would have with your therapist, right, where you're just on the couch and you're kind of uh, talking about all of the internal emotions that you're having, because that's what it sounded like. He's very emotional. And listen, he's not going to get over the Mitt Romney thing. That was deeply wounding to him. He very much prized, uh, prizes the fact that he's able to keep Republicans together and the fact that Mitt Romney uh, has strayed uh, from the Republican pack in uh, aligning himself, w- w- you know, not aligning himself with the president. I think this is not something he's going to forgive. I might argue it's more of a dear diary, or certainly you're not getting your money's worth because a therapist might interject in the middle right. of that. And this was more of like a, this was just a monologue. John Harwood, you cover him day in, day out. What struck you? Look, this was a very disturbing uh, tableau for the country. Um, It was dark because he's made clear that his mind is dark. This is somebody in deep psychological distress right now, self-pitying, insecure, angry. He said almost plaintively at the end when he was reading a text from Strzok uh, to Page uh, where he said, I'm a good person. I'm not a bad person. Uh, he w- he was sort of imploring people to accept that view of him. When uh, Caitlin and um, uh, Alexi said he thinks I did nothing wrong, that sentence stops with the word I, because with Donald Trump, if he did it, 
it's not wrong. He doesn't recognize abstract concepts like right and wrong, like morality or immorality, like true or false. Uh, he recognizes what is good for him in the moment and what has happened, what Mitt Romney has done by casting that vote, what Nancy has, uh, Pelosi has done, uh, has felt very, very unpleasant to him. He said impeachment's a very ugly word. And by going after Romney, the other, the other part of it that, it, that is, uh, I think striking is the entire Republican Party, uh, reduced to sitting there applauding this rambling, disordered, uh, set of remarks. And one of the reasons why uh, it is an uncomfortable moment for them, is that Mitt Romney, when he gave that speech, said, I've looked at the facts, I've, I've come to the conclusion I can't avoid this. He stripped naked the rationalizations that they've used for their votes. Remember, they started out saying, once the whistleblower broke, uh, they started out saying, well, it w obviously it would be terrible if it was a quid pro quo, but there's no evidence of a quid pro quo. Now, when we got to the end of the process, Ted Cruz told the White House lawyers, well, we all know there was a quid pro quo. And what they're saying is, yes, there was a quid pro quo. They proved that case, but it's not that big a deal. They, they were starting from the end point of uh, protecting this president, and Romney has showed that the uh, uh, calculations behind that are pretty hollow. He's the victim here. Yeah. There's, there, this is how he sees himself. He is the victim in all of this, he has done nothing wrong. And as you point out, John, lots of Republicans are now saying, well, the call was inappropriate. He thinks, but not impeachable. He said, there is nothing wrong with it. He is the good guy. They are the bad guy. And this is the way this campaign is going to be run. Make no mistake about it. No matter who his opponent is, the world will be divided into good and evil. And most of the country, I don't think, is in the good and evil thing. I think the country looks at politicians and says, well, there are some good things he says, there are some bad things she says. I don't, you know, I don't. Most of the country is against. That's right. That's right. But we, but people don't see people as black and white. But he's and playing on the inherent tribalism that I think a lot of people feel since President Trump was elected and clearly that a lot of people were feeling and having those feelings bubble up, you know, when Obama was president. But the interesting thing when we think about what John was just saying about this is we, let's think back to the conversations I know all this at this table had with other reporters when President Trump was Limbaugh has lived the American dream, but at the same time, he's used his words to make a mockery of that dream, sometimes sharing xenophobic, misogynistic, and racist sentiments with the masses. This is how he chose to speak of a New York Yankee icon the day he died in 2010. Steinbrenner has passed away at age 80. That cracker made a lot of African-American millionaires. In 2011, Limbaugh decided to mock the Chinese president during his visit to the United States. Hu Jintao was just going Limbaugh attacked those who didn't share his political ideas with a fervor and harshness that stood out amongst his talk show peers. As you might know, I care deeply about stem cell research. When actor Michael J. Fox, who suffers from Parkinson's disease, did this ad for a Democratic candidate who supported stem cell research, Limbaugh pounced. This is Michael J. Fox. He's got Parkinson's disease. And it's in this commercial, he is exaggerating the effects of the disease. He is moving all around and shaking, and it's purely an act. After outrage over his comments, Limbaugh apologized the next day, saying... I will bigly, hugely admit that I was wrong. But he reserved a great deal of his racist comments for one man, 
Barack Obama, both as president and as a candidate. In 2007, as Obama campaigned on hope and change, Limbaugh debuted a racist parody of Puff the Magic Dragon, sung by a candidate for chairman of the Republican National Committee. Then, Limbaugh defended his decision to air it. Every one of you out there that think you've got something here on Barack the Magic Negro, I'm going to try to help you and save you. His adoring fans believed he was saving them from liberal bias, but his critics recognized he also delivered hateful rhetoric that helped usher in a new era of extreme political polarization. And here are the rest. We're going to have uh, just, I think, bitter, angry, I mean, as our intro is, Joy Behar, Mika Bitter, Bitter, Bitter Bitch was my notes. And Marr getting slammed by black people. Kind of surprising. President Trump is striking back, firing Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, the National Security Council Ukraine expert who testified against him in Congress. And this comes just two days after the president's acquittal in the Senate. And it's raising questions about who's next on the president's list. Paula Reed reports tonight from the White House. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman was escorted out of the White House today, his lawyer said, just hours after President Trump revealed he still holds a grudge against the star impeachment witness. Well, I'm not happy with him. You think I'm supposed to be happy with him? I'm not. Today, Vindman's lawyer issued a statement saying, quote, the truth has cost him his job, his career, and his privacy. He followed orders, he obeyed his oath, and he served his country. All right, Jonathan Carl, also live here in the debate hall tonight as well. And, John, we know Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman is still on active duty in the U.S. Army. And I know that the Secretary of Defense today was asked if he would be protected there. Defense Secretary Esper David said, quote, we protect all our service members from retribution or anything like that. But I am told that this will not end with the Vindmans, that the president wants what one person close to him described as a house cleaning of those who he believes have been disloyal. We protect all of our persons, uh, service members from, from retribution or anything, a- anything like that. Critics worry the president's looking for payback now that his impeachment trial is over. That's such a shame. What a patriotic person. Vindman was born in Ukraine, but his family fled to America when he was a toddler, a journey he referenced during emotional testimony in November with this message to his father. Talking to our elected professionals is proof that you made the right decision 40 years ago to leave the Soviet Union and come here to the United States of America in search of a better life for our family. Do not worry. I will be fine for telling the truth. And by the way, acquittal, acquitted doesn't mean you didn't commit a crime. Three words, O.J. Simpson. <laughs> this is coming out of my ear. Oh, oh, crazy. Is that your earpiece? I'm crazy today. He's made me crazy this week. I mean, I'm really getting, he's winning because yeah. I'm getting nuttier and nuttier. <laughs> I believe that the president has learned from this case. The president has been impeached. That's a pretty big lesson. And we were treated unbelievably unfairly. And you have to understand, uh, we first went through Russia, Russia, Russia. It was all bull****. Why do you have that feeling that he, he has changed, that he learned a lesson? Well, I may not be correct on that. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah you, know. you may not be correct. In fact, you're completely incorrect. And you know it. That's the thing. You know it. You were, I, I, the president is making a fool of every single Republic, yeah. Republican we just showed there, and yeah. they know it. You knew it when you were saying it. You knew it before you said it. You knew it during the time that you were saying it, and you know it now. But you did it anyway. And so let's break it down. Let's just break that down. You it's knew a it. tiny bit unpatriotic, Susan Collins, to really think the president... Might, you might be incorrect. The president maybe didn't learn a lesson when he was shaking down a foreign leader for dirt on a political rival. Maybe even sort of leading to the deaths of Ukrainians, which I know some of Trump supporters really don't like it when I say that. But that's the reality. That certainly what, that's your legacy. That's certainly what foreign diplomats have said. And uh, so you can take the words of Trumpists or foreign diplomats. Have fun living with that. On that. Your legacy. But, but again, not just not just Susan Collins. It's Cory Gardner. It's it's Lamar Alexander. It's Lamar Alexander. It's every other Republican, uh, Willie, who who know what the president did. Moscow Mitch was wrong. Who know like, Moscow Mitch wouldn't even wouldn't even answer the question. What the president did, what, was it right all that money from Russia. or wrong? For me, between Republicans and Democrats. State of the Union, I was surprised. I thought I was watching BET. The whole thing <laughs> seemed geared toward winning the black voter, right? I mean, he had the little girl who was going to go to a charter school. He, he called out the one black Republican senator, yes. Tim Scott. He had the Tuskegee the Airmen. He cited a lot of stats about black unemployment yes. being better, all this stuff. Wow. The Democrats, would, Democrats, like, their weak point is the South. They just write it off. They don't even try. Trump is like, what's my weak point? Blacks? I'm going to get them. No, no, no. I, I got was... Melania back. I'm going to get them back. <laughs> I think there's a question, though, of whether politically he is trying to actually win black voters or whether he wants to appear to his voters as if he's trying to win black voters, which is different. Yeah, more, spe- more specifically, and I think he's, he's trying to say, I got a black friend. He's, he's not trying to save everybody. He's been no, but, I, I, but he is trying to win that I feel vote. Like every year we do this. No, you don't, don't think he was trying to win the black vote? I held proper speech and everybody to do is show suburban white women who have been fleeing the Republican Party right. and look at these recent elections where Democrats Huge have won in places where we haven't. He wants to yes. show those folks that he is not as yeah. abominable as he is, that he's not an overt racist, that he can have a black friend, right. uh, because this isn't about saving, uh, directing an agenda that actually wins. Recall, this man, uh, Barack Obama, had in the final three years of his administration, 35 straight weeks of economic oh, yeah. growth, Actually, on average 270,000 jobs. We actually yeah. agree that this is about winning suburban right. women, women more than it is uh, black So voters. let me ask about the... They were so bitter they let Nancy, and I'm not going to read it, literally get an op-ed in the Washington Post, which is so rare. Do you remember Boehner op-eds? Does anybody... I don't remember it. But when they weren't bitter, they were spinning. Iowa pretty much made MSNBC lose their fucking mind. Because remember, you know, Russia's our deal. We, we stick to Russia and we stick to this. Now 4chan. Rachel Maddow brought it out. Then NBC covered it. 
But here's the deal. Stephen Miller kills it. NBC is now trying to pin the Democratic failure in Iowa on 4chan. If you thought this was going to go any other way, seems like pretty important context. In their article, it's unclear how many prank calls the party received or how much they contribute to wait times. Some calls came from Iowans looking to confirm details for their evening caucus. First Russia, then Trump, then 4chan, then fill in blank. Never dims. Another end day ending in Y. And as we all know, 4chan is a Russian front. So basically it was Trump's fault. Here is Rachel Maddow. And then you'll hear Katie Tour. She's spinning it as, well, Republicans only got to do this because of gerrymandering in Senate seats. Since that initial reporting, NBC News and other news organizations have tracked down messages like these from pro-Trump political message boards online, which show Trump supporters in real time on caucus night not only posting and reposting the hotline number that precinct chairs were supposed to use to call in results to the Iowa Democratic Party, but explicitly encouraging one another to call and call and call again, specifically to clog up the lines, specifically to mess with the Democrats' ability to carry out the caucus. Quote, F them up. Keep clogging the lines. Keep clogging the lines. The results are not being reported because the lines are clogged. Keep clogging the lines. Now, it is clear that that is not the only thing that went wrong with the tabulation of the Iowa caucus results on Monday. But that, it turns out, is one of the things that went wrong. And is the kind of thing we have seen before. The next Democratic nominating contest in 2020 is Tuesday in New Hampshire. New Hampshire state officials today held a press conference to assure everybody in the state and around the country that what happened in Iowa isn't going to happen there. That they have every confidence that absolutely nothing will go wrong with the primary in New Hampshire on Tuesday. One reporter asked explicitly whether the 2002 phone jamming scandal from New Hampshire might be a worrying past precedent for that state, given what just appears to have happened in Iowa. New Hampshire's Republican governor responded to that question by dismissing the matter entirely, saying that issue from nearly 20 years ago just doesn't apply today. It should be noted that the New Hampshire governor right now is a man named Chris Sununu, who is the younger brother of former Senator John Sununu, who is the guy who benefited from the illegal phone jamming scheme for which people went to prison in New Hampshire in that election 18 years ago. So, I mean, once again... Whether In case you missed it, majority doesn't always rule in this country. 48 senators voted to remove the president from office. 52 voted to acquit. But the 48 actually represent 12 million more voters than the senators who decided to keep Donald Trump in the White House. So um, what is the, what's the resolution to that? Is, is gerrymandering something that would help um, improve the situation? Is, how, does, how does that sort of divide promote consensus in the Senate or even in the House? Well, I mean, they're, they're the only resolution. Gerrymanders not going to do anything because in the Senate we're talking about states, right? Yeah. You can't gerrymander states. The only solution is for Democrats to appeal to voters in those states, right? Wasn't one of the complaints they had is that Trump supporters are all conspiracy theorists? And what does it say about a news organization that Democratic strategists float 4chan and the Electoral College impeachment concept, which isn't a thing. It's just not a thing. And then MSNBC carries it. 
It comes down to have a major problem, and it's Bernie Sanders. They don't want it. The leftist media, from an article, done their part in burying the Bernie popularity, so it only makes sense that Byron York and Britt Hume come forward to do the real work. Byron York, AP says it cannot declare a winner in Iowa based on arcane SDE calculations, but the 99% reporting, Sanders has 6,114 votes, a 3.4 percentage point lead, 2,631 lead in second vote. Neither is close to call. Sanders won, but remember, they, they said it was butt leg. Brit Hume digging into it. The arcane delicate formula is useless. Iowa's 41 delegates are too few to matter in the big picture. Iowa's notable only as an early test of candidate strength. The popular vote is the best indication of that. So Byron's right. Sanders won. But they lied. They don't want him to win. Scott Santine. Um, this is his tweet. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, it's buried. With 100% of the precinct reporting, I could faithfully say that Iowa results are bullshit. As a precinct captain and DM06, I know for a fact the number reported for that district for every candidate who got more than zero votes are wrong. 185 people caucus there. They say only 92 did. I'm not the only precinct captain to know for a fact that the official numbers are wrong. Here's another. They say it's wrong. Then Megan Messerly, new Nevada Democrats are developing a new tool to preload into iPads and distribute to precinct chairs. And let me guess, it's a butt leg? Butt leg? Really? Yeah. So, here's another soundbite. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Brianna. It's a great day in New Hampshire. I got my gloves. I know it's always cold there uh, this time of year. So tell us, because this is a case that the Biden campaign and Joe Biden need to make. What is your case for why he can still hold up in the general, even with a fourth place finish in Iowa? Well, I would just point you to Vice President Biden's remarks and uh, the community event that he's wrapping up right now today. You know, Vice President Biden said we, he took a punch in Iowa, but this is not the first time he's been knocked down. And for anyone who is wondering, he's not going anywhere. He's going to fight. He's used to fighting for what he wants, fighting for what he believes in. And this nomination is no different. Look, Brianna, I think we have a very strong case to make. I watched the State of the Union last night, and I've been listening to the cable news coverage, but I've also been listening to what folks are saying right here on the ground in New Hampshire. And they know two things. One, it's going to be hard to beat Donald Trump, but also we have to beat Donald Trump. And that means we have to get real about this election. We have to get real about um, the candidates in this race. And you are going to see Vice President Biden over the next week or so uh, here in New Hampshire continue to make his case that he is the strongest candidate to take on Donald Trump and talk about the issues. Health care is the most important issue facing people in this country, especially here in New Hampshire. And there are real differences between the candidates, Brianna, and we're going to talk about them. To that point, I think part of what the Biden campaign wanted for positioning was on health care for there to be this alternative choice between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. And that's not as much of a case that can be made right now coming out of fourth place in Iowa. How do you tackle that <laughs> issue so that people, so that voters in New Hampshire see it that way? 
Brianna, uh, I, I, no surprise, I disagree with your assessment. The reality is the majority of voters in America, of voters in New Hampshire, um, that we don't have a case to make on health care. Which, which, which part of my assessment do you disagree with? I, I just... Brianna, I just told you, on health care, because the majority of voters are where Vice President Biden is when it comes to health care. Look, um, you want to talk about big fights, hard fights being won, a progressive vision? I give you Obamacare. And it was Vice President Biden who was there and helped fight that fight. And the majority of voters um, want to build on Obamacare, but also... Um, help fix the parts um, where we're lagging. And that's when it comes to our plan, which builds on Obamacare but provides for a Medicare-like option that lowers costs, lowers deductibles, that allows folks to keep their private health insurance um, if they want it. And a very important point here, Brianna, doesn't raise taxes on middle-class Americans. Bernie Sanders doesn't have a leg to stand on when it comes to that assertion. He has said by his own accounts earlier in this race that his plan will lower costs on middle-class Americans, well, pardon me, will raise, raise taxes on middle-class Americans, and it's going to cost 30 to 40 trillion dollars. Now he's saying we don't know what it'll cost. That's not going to fly with Donald Trump, Brianna. And the last point that I'll make, uh, the last point that I'll make, and I think it's something many people are talking about today, uh, is Senator Sanders has branded himself as a socialist. And that is a, that is a, a moniker he himself has embraced, but that is not a moniker that folks across this country, when it comes to down ballot candidates, will be able to embrace and be successful. This is about Simone. keeping the House. This is about gaining seats in the Senate. Uh, and this is about getting beating Donald Trump and you can't beat Donald Trump a double talk on health care and Donald Trump is going to uh, brand it, we, we can't beat Donald Trump with socialism across this country it's just not going to I'm work. curious I'm I am curious I have a number of other questions to ask you but just having covered Bernie Sanders and dealing with you a lot when you worked for him in 2016 it just strikes me that you're making a case against the very thing you were making a case for and that clearly uh, a well, lot Brianna, of voters me, are interested Brianna, if in. I may if I may Brianna, if I may, I was a good spokesperson in 2016, and I would offer that I'm a great spokesperson now. And our message today that we are carrying and that Vice President Biden forcefully delivered here in New Hampshire is that we have to get real about this election. We can okay, talk sure. about progressive so plans. I, Vice President Biden I, has those. I hear you. But we also I, have plans that can't get done, Brianna. As, and as that's what awaiting, it comes to on health As we're awaiting, and our, our viewers can see this, the Iowa results, they're not totally in right now. Your campaign has raised questions about the legitimacy of the process, which, of course, I mean, granted, right, Simone, we've seen this has been a total debacle, but the party says the raw data is correct. It was just a back-end issue. Yesterday, your comms director, Kate Bedingfield, was raising concerns about the legitimacy of the results. Is that a concern you still have? Look, I stand by Kate Bedingfield's comments, and I would also underscore that the integrity of this process is very important. So you're um, saying the results that we are Party currently, th Simone, this is very important. Brianna, the, the Brianna, results if that, I may, Brianna, I know this important. is important, so Simone, and finish. we're running out of time. If you the would allow me to that finish, seeing, if you no, would allow because me to you're finish, not answering my question. The results, that the results that Brianna, what I'm saying is that the results that we have seen are partial results. We do not have all the data, but we are moving forward. And but the data that you have, are you the data? That we you have. Believe, Do you, are you Brianna, putting that into doubt? Are you saying that they may? With no, Simone, this is important. To this is important. This Simone, apples to apples, because I want to pin you down on this. This is very important. Yes, it's the obvious. data is partial. <laughs> I already said that. The data is partial. But that said, that's not what we heard from Kate Bedingfield. She wasn't saying that it was partial. She was raising, she was saying that this process threw into question the legitimacy of the data. As we are, as we have seen it, is that true? Should we doubt 
in your view, let in the campaign's view, the, no, let me finish, Simone. I let you finish. Let me finish. Should, <laughs> you are did, you saying, you didn't actually, but are you, I did before, multiple times. Are you go saying ahead, that Brianna. we should doubt the results as we see them? Is that what you're saying, that we should doubt the numbers that we Brianna? see? What I am saying is that on Monday night in Iowa, there were failures across the process when it came to the Iowa caucuses. Um, there was confusion. Do you believe the, the results? The app that the Iowa Democratic Party used Do you believe the data that you're work. seeing? The, you, we the know that, Simone. Do you believe that there we understand? Do you believe the data is people correct? People were waiting for two hours. Why can't you say if the data is correct or incorrect? to the Iowa Democratic Party headquarters, they were unable to get that data. Is this correct what we're seeing? Simone, is this correct? The presidential preference cards are, are very important. So all our campaign has said, and and what Kate Bennett okay, said Simone, yesterday, what I'm Simone, today, Simone, is Simone, I am sure going to answer. Right. Simone, we here's the deal. Sure I'm going to interrupt you when you're not answering the question. Is this data correct in your view? Is it correct? Look. Brianna, I Brianna, I have not analyzed the back ends of the data. What we are saying and what we have implored to the Iowa Democratic Party are two things. One, we have to make sure we get it right. Getting it right means checking, checking again, and triple checking, and making sure that there is a paper trail, the presidential preference cards. Don't try to paint this as we're trying to say this is some kind of conspiracy theory, okay? Uh, what we hey, are saying, Simone, frankly, is that Simone, the integrity I'm saying, of this process... I'm repeating Brianna, what your communications Brianna, director is saying. No, 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 no. And our communications no, director is trying to preserve the let, integrity no, no, stop. of this process. Simone, we're going to roll the soundbite. Let's roll the soundbite, you guys. Roll it right now. And what we think... If you have a process where you can't be confident that the results that are being reported are reflective of uh, the votes that people cast last night in the process, that's a real concern. Simone, yeah. for detractors of President yeah, Trump's... Yeah, that is a real concern. One of, no, no, I'm, I'm speaking now. For detractors of President Trump's including you, including a lot of Democrats, one of their major concerns with him is that he throws into question the legitimacy of institutions, not the least of which is the election process. And that appears to be what you are currently doing now by saying, by not stating that Brianna, we can trust the numbers we're seeing. I'm just looking for clarity in your question. Are you equating us raising legitimate concerns about a process where the, the app broke down, the, the we don't have accounting for presidential preference cards, the phone lines and the backups didn't work? Are you equating us raising legitimate questions that everyone could see from Monday night to what Donald Trump and his campaign is doing? Because if that's the case, I think Simone, that's pretty then let me clarify. I'm, ask, I'm, I'm asking, asking. Please clarify. Yes, I am asking, and this was my question, do you believe the numbers that you see coming in right now are correct? And Brianna, what I am saying is we have asked the Iowa Democratic Party to check, check again, and triple check. They Those have numbers coming in are correct according to the, the numbers partial data are is still correct, coming they in. Say. Do you not believe them? Well, I guess we'll have to take the Iowa Democratic Party at their word, Brianna. But again, we're moving forward. And the questions that we have raised are, frankly, legitimate questions. And I think this just this just makes all the more case about why uh, we have to take our time. Democrats have to make sure we get things right. And we are looking forward to a primary here in New Hampshire. And the next caucuses we have are in Nevada. And the Nevada Democratic Party has already come out and said that they are taking steps to ensure that the failures that happen in Iowa don't happen in Nevada. And we look forward to getting there. Look, we feel good, Brianna. We feel really good about what's going on. Vice President Biden delivered a forceful, a very forceful um, defense and case for his campaign today. I know we'll be on.
on, uh, he'll be on the stage uh, with uh, Anderson Cooper tonight at the CNN Town Hall, and we hope people tune in. This election is too important. This is a battle for the soul of the nation, and Vice President Biden is the candidate in this race that can get it done. Thank you so much. I wish we could have spoken more about that, Simone. That other, those questions back and forth were exhausting. Uh, Simone Sanders, I really appreciate oh, you joining us. I know I need coffee now. Still, Thank you so much. We Brianna. have questions. There are still questions at this point for uh, the remaining candidates. See, that's the problem. They got problems, folks. I mean, from this to this litany, I'm going to play. Well, I'll just play the next one: the negative debate. Now, let's just have fun. We'll have fun. I'll do it the right way. I had it written the right way. I'll keep it the right way. Here's SNL mocking the Dems for their debate. And then we're going to go into the debate coverage. So to keep it easy for you and not having me come back and reiterate what we just heard, we'll play a cold open SNL. You'll hear a break. Negative debate coverage. This is the media are starting to realize it's not good. Then we're going to take, and I'm going to talk about why it's not good. Because we have man-splaming comments in there. And the only person that has had the balls is Van Jones and James Carville. So we're going to talk about those two on the other side. So here comes SNL mocking them. And then the media starting to get, it's not good. From Manchester, New Hampshire, it's the Democratic Debate. Good evening and welcome to the Democratic Debate. I'm George Stephanopoulos. And joining me for optics is Lindsay Davis and David Muir. Thank you, Thank you Okay, George. that's enough. <laughs> wow, what a week it has been for American politics. Iowa was a disaster. President Trump has gone super saiyan since his acquittal. And now it's up to New Hampshire to start turning things around for the Democrats. So let's meet our future MSNBC contributors. <laughs> Billionaire Tom Steyer, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, Senator Vermont, Bernie Sanders, former Vice President Joe Biden, Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, former Southland Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, and Andrew Yang. Vice President Biden, let's start with you. Are you at all concerned about your poor performance in Iowa? Well, you know, I'll be honest. Losing Iowa was a real kick in the nuts, all right? But I am not worried at all because, you know, by the time we get to South Kakalaki, Joe Biden's going to do what Joe Biden does best. Creep up from behind. <laughs> Just when you think your lead is safe, my numbers are going to sneak up and surprise you with a nice, sweet kiss on the neck. <laughs> uh, Mayor Pete, uh, you initially claimed victory in Iowa, and then Senator Sanders claimed victory a few days later, leading to some major infighting. Who do you think really won? Uh, Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, I mean, out of the Democrats. Oh, oh then uh, I guess me. Uh, I still can't believe all this mess happened in Iowa. I can't believe all this mess happened in Iowa because of an app. Hey, I have an idea for an app. 
It's called no apps. No apps, no computers, no gadgets, no gizmos. You show up to your polling place, take a number like you do with the butcher. They call your ticket. You walk up to the counter and say to the guy, give me a pound or whatever's about to go bad. Oh, the issue in Iowa was math? Oh, I wonder who they could have called to help them out with that. <laughs> oh, what? I meant because of my pin, racist. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to talk about Iowa anymore. Let's talk about the here and now. All right. I am very confident about my chances in New Hampshire. I, I tend to really connect with New England moms who own big dogs and rock a fleece vest seven days out of here. Look, New Hampshire, your state border might be kissing Vermont, but your ass is resting on Massachusetts, so come on over and see me. <laughs> is not the only sensible candidate standing here before you. You are looking at the other half of the New York Times endorsement. <laughs> but guess what? Elizabeth is J-Lo, and I'm Shakira. And so, to Donald Trump, I say... my hand up now i would like to talk please notice me thank you okay go ahead uh i just want to say that i love everybody here i mean i agree with all of them you know everybody all of you uh, i'm sorry i'm tripping balls right now all right uh, let's take a quick word from our sponsor tonight bloomberg <laughs> Are you a registered Democrat thinking, these can't be my only choices? Then try Bloomberg. He's not as short as Trump is fat. Okay, I'm not an out-of-touch billionaire like Bloomberg. Sure, I've been taking a private jet to campaign events, but I do that for my fellow passengers. Believe me, you don't want to sit next to me on a plane. I'm a middle seat guy and get up to use the bathroom minimum six times between Des Moines and Manchester. I bring Tupperware leftovers from home that stink up the plane. And if you think I'm loud when I talk, you should hear me chew. No, 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 no. You're not going to outpour me, all right? My campaign... My campaign's broke as hell. My biggest contributions are the pennies from loafers and uh, and whatever the concerned moms of Bernie Bros can afford. Okay, this is my favorite part of the debate, where we ask about winning the black vote. I'm going to start with you, Mayor Pete. Oh man. <laughs> Look, people, you know, say I'm not very popular among minorities. They've been referring to me as Mayo Pete. But I assure you, I'm not that spicy. All right. Uh, look, speaking of the black vote, that reminds me of a little underdog story. And spoiler alert, it's a long one. All right. The year was 1900 rat-a-tat-tat, okay? And I'm strutting through the rough part of Wilmington, D.E., when suddenly... I come across four gentlemen from the Isle of Jamaica. Now, I'm talking these fellows are dark as night, okay? Before they 
can make their first move, though. I toss them, all four of them, right into a cardboard box, and I roll them down a hill. <laughs> and that is how I gave Jamaica its first bobsled team. Great people. It's simple. If you want black people to like you, give them $1,000. It's been working for me since high school. Hey, uh, my hand's up again. Uh, I'm just going to come out and say it. I am 100% for reparations. All right, but in what way? I don't know, but that guy's with me. <laughs> All right, let's hear your closing statements, Senator Klobuchar. Uh, why am I not doing better? <laughs> I'm the most reasonable person on stage. Instead of tearing Democrats down, I get along with everyone up here. Uh, Baby Nut, Chompers, Slender Man. <laughs> and I know you're probably surprised to see me on this stage still, but I'm Amy Klobuchar. I'm here. I'm square. Get used to it. <laughs> Listen, bottom line, I, I know a lot of people like me, but they worry about if I'm electable, and I, I have a great solution for that. Elect me. Uh, <laughs> it's that simple. You can trust this face. This is me on LinkedIn, Facebook, IG, and Michael's Craft Store. <laughs> Senator Sanders. Okay. <laughs> I don't know how or why it happened, but I am king of an army of internet trolls <laughs> called Bernie Bros. Could I stop them in their tracks? Of course. Should I? Yes. Will I? Eh. Hillary Clinton says nobody likes me. Let me ask you this. Then how come I'm the most popular guy on 4chan? <laughs> Mayor Pete. Look, I, I know uh, corruption is a problem in this country. I, I know big business controls too much of Washington. I know Democrats don't want another candidate with massive corporate donors. And I know that I sound like a bot that has studied human behavior by watching a hundred hours of Obama speeches. So let's get white Obama trending. And please, please, not ironically. Thank you. Look, I tried to tell you guys the robots are calming Yang Game 2020. Let's get the shmoney! Mr. Steyer. You know, I didn't come here to make friends. But damn it, I made some great ones. It's been an honor, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Mr. Biden, you have 60 seconds. What? No, the doctor said I had six to eight months. <laughs> No, I meant for your closing statements. Oh, okay, all right, all right. Well, then I guess there's only one thing left to say. One of them is going to have to become the nominee, and I think one of the things that Democrats are going to remember from 2016 is this whole question of a narrative. I mean, that's exactly why a lot of Bernie Sanders supporters came out of 2016 ticked off, because they felt like the DNC told them, right. no, 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 you're kind of supporting the wrong person. You can vote for who you want, but shouldn't you be voting for... So one of the things I'm interested to see in 2020 is how much we will allow Democrats to make their own choice. The story of who the party is supposed to support is not up to us. Yeah. It's up to Democrats. And the fact that this process is murky is fine. 
Let them vote. It's okay for voters to make this decision. It's not comfortable. It makes it hard for us to yeah. prognosticate. But if there's one thing that at least the people I talked to came out of 2016 feeling, it's that they were told what the narrative was supposed to be, and they felt like votes were kind of being whipped from the top down. I don't know who Democrats are going to pick, but I would I would presume they'd like to pick for themselves. So I hear you on that, but and there's a lot of theories as to why Hillary Clinton lost in 2016. For but sure. I covered the entirety of the Bernie Sanders campaign, and it was very clear way before that process was over that he was not going to be the nominee, mostly because African-American voters in the South said, we're not going to vote for you. And that, that was known, and he stayed in it anyway. And some of the anger is on the Clinton side because they feel like he did damage to her in a nominating process that stretched out for months when it didn't have to. So, you know, I think my question for Democrats is, you know, are they going to feel that is an imperative, or are we going to end up in the same place where, like, all the millions of dollars, all the anger is playing out into July while Trump is, you know, trying, uh, doing a victory Well, march. right now... Klobuchar has had many moments in debates. She's, she's had some strong debates, but she do, still doesn't seem to move up and, in fact, has faded a bit. Do you think this will take her back up in the polls? You would have to think, if it doesn't, what will? I mean, I, I think most reasonable people would say she may have won tonight, but will it translate into money tomorrow? Will it push her campaign forward? See, one of the things that sort of surprised me about tonight as we look at uh, Vice President Biden, was that... They are clearly enjoying this. Right? Andrew exactly. Yang there was jumping up and down for a while. So Biden isn't expected to do well in New Hampshire, that he has to do well in South Carolina, which has a larger black vote. Race didn't come up in this, in this debate until about 90 minutes in, and it came up from Tom Steyer, who, who brought it up, and then they engaged. One thing I want to say about how I, I thought all the candidates, when it came to the conversation about race 90 minutes in, I thought in some ways all of them were tone deaf. Because so often when, when they discuss race, it is about the pathology of the black experience. It is about the black nightmare, not about the black the, the, the dreams of, of African Americans, because it came up in their conversation about criminal justice reform. I think that is that is a blind spot for them that that will hurt them down the road. You who do you think stood out in terms of going after Donald Trump? You you deal with Donald Trump yeah. every single day. First of all, obviously the candidate that he feared most early on was Joe Biden. That is not the case anymore. And I don't think there was anybody based on tonight's performance that has the Trump campaign quaking in their boots. But I think that the Democratic Party has to figure out its ideology. Uh, in Britain, we had the Liberal Party. Well, I wasn't going out at the beginning of the last century. We had the Liberal Party. They were overtaken by the Socialist Party. Labor became the main threat, the main challenger to the Tories. Churchill went back to the Tories. We know all those. A lot of us know that history. Uh, a lot of us will be sorting things out if the Democratic Party runs a socialist candidate. That's a change from the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party's been to the left of the Republican Party on the issue of mixed capitalism, more social programs. They push Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, enormously popular programs. I think uh, ACA Obamacare has also, in which they follow through with it and make it work. I think most Americans would be happy that have a public option and have Medicare uh, followed through with. But I, I don't want to get into the, You know, I'm on every night. I let the Democrats figure this out. I, I have my own views of the word socialist, and I'll be glad to tell them, share them with you in private. And they go back to uh, the early 1950s. I have an attitude about them. I remember the Cold War. I have an attitude towards Castro. I believe if Castro and the, and the, and the Reds had won the Cold War, there would have been executions in Central Park, and I might have been one of the ones getting executed. And certain other people would be there cheering, okay? So I have a problem with people who took the other side. I don't know who Bernie, 
Bernie supports over these years. I don't know what he means by social. One week it's Denmark. We're going to be like Denmark. Okay, that's harmless. That's, a, that's basically a capitalist country with a lot of good social welfare programs. Denmark is harmless. It's pretty clearly in the Denmark is category. He? Yeah. Are you sure? How do you know? Did he tell you that? Well, I mean, that's what he says, and that's what his agenda calls for, right? Yeah, yeah, He's not uh, calling uh, for well, anything. Let's see. Let's see. Let's figure that one out. A, well, we haven't seen a, a campaign yet. Where video of him praising the other version right. of Castro and, and, has been used, well, but that's it a, will be used. That's a question of how, how that plays. of how tangible, what, what the effect that has. In well, what does question. he think of Castro? That's okay. a great question. What did you think of Fidel Ismo? We all thought he was great when he first. I thought he was cheering like mad for him okay. I'm gonna, when he first went in, and then that. he became a communist and started shooting okay. every one of his enemies. Okay, Jose, so, all, all those thoughts on the Cuban, all those thoughts on the Cuban Revolution. It's like a Rubik's cube. You can't pull it off in the Dem debate. You can't pull it off in here. You can't be the perfect woke candidate. There's so much shit. You have the sexism and xenophobia and racism and this and that. Here is David Axelrod getting basically chastised for mansplaining. Night. I'm terrified that we don't have anybody that has the feeling and the breath. She can grow, man. She was awesome on every issue. And she was reaching on race and gender in ways that actually worked. I think this party needs to give her a second look because Elizabeth Warren tonight did the whole thing. She did it well. She made no mistakes. I think she's probably going to get the least attention, but she deserves the most. She did a uniquely female thing, which was that she did more with considerably less. By by the last counts that I saw of speaking time, she was coming in at about 50 percent of what Biden, who came in after her in Iowa, got. Uh, you know, this is this is the third place candidate coming out of Iowa, and usually we consider the third place candidate out of Iowa very much still in the race, especially in a race this fluid. Right. We're considering a man who has yet to receive any votes or be held accountable on any national stage as very much a part of this race. So the idea that Elizabeth Warren would be a race especially after a night where she put in another A-game performance yeah, on you know, gun violence prevention, on reproductive freedom, on race. So I, I think so it would be a Tom mistake. Tom Steyer to probably got more time than she yeah. did. Right. Yes. And you know why Tom Steyer got more time than he did? Because he demanded it. She had her hands up, and if she had jumped and, in, and, she would have been and, called and out and for, for being I think here, here's, the problem for, here's the problem for her. Uh, we haven't mentioned Bernie Sanders yet. Bernie Sanders is an extraordinarily consistent performer and you know he speaks with uh with 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 great moral conviction we've heard it all before but but the fact that we've heard it all before adds some authenticity Look, to it all of those guys were yelling so much it was like they were trying to prove that there was a double Lover standard had how women problem. are allowed to yeah. present themselves Lover in debates and men are and if she had jumped in like Steyer did i think we'd be talking about how she had pushed it too far tonight i, I think there's still too many people on the stage if you look at i mean their candidates are basically bumper sticker generator. Gonna play a Warren soundbite. This is really good. It's side by side viewing of her talking. It's nothing but talking points that you could find in some college kids' busted ass Prius. You know, we, we had, had three years from now from college for Donald three years Trump now. and Mitch McConnell. And it was exactly three years ago, years ago to not Mitch McConnell tried to pitch me off the Senate floor for reading a, a statement from Coretta Scott King to, to try to, try to stop a racist from being nominated to be Attorney General of the United States. And that's when Mitch McConnell said the words that women have put on T-shirts, have embroidered on pillows, 
thousands have had tattooed on their bodies. Nevertheless, she persisted. Right now, there are a lot of folks around the country who are really worried that this race against Donald Trump may be unwinnable. I've been fighting fights that are unwinnable pretty much all of my life. The fighting to get a federal agency to protect people. The fight to hold the CEO of Wells Fargo held accountable. And by the way, I got fired. And fighting to take back a Senate seat from a popular incumbent Republican. So I think this is all going to come down to winnability. And there are a lot of folks who say, oh, I don't know, because race being winnable. And I don't know if she can win. Now, here's how I look at it. People doubt winnability right up until we get in the race, we persist, and then we win. And that's how I'm going to be the first president, woman president. I mean, it, you can't win. The internet intersectionality scorecard, we'll see when we get to liberal shit in our next podcast. Because there's going to be two today. I just didn't say it in the beginning, but they're so long. So I'll put that little disclaimer on the front. Oops, I did it again. I just keep on making these long podcasts. But I, she's hated by blacks. And then the actual gays don't even, or excuse me, gays, Gays don't even like butt leg, and black people can't stand butt leg because he's gay, and they hate her because she's not black enough. Deval Patrick is like one of the lowest characters on their little thing, so that was from the root. I mean, it's just unbelievable. So let's do a uh, break, and we're going to come and finish this thing up with some comments by them that are just fucking horrible and why it turns off the rest of the nation, and we'll close it with Van Jones. And then our next podcast will be news and social media nuggets. So this little soundbite instead of music is AOC. It looks like a hostage video. This is her boyfriend, a white dude, talking about how white people should be. It's it's uncomfortable to watch. So Riley, what has been helpful to you in combating racism? Uh, I think it's helpful and important to talk to other white people about racism and I think a lot of people, they don't want to be racist. They don't think that they're racist, but they also don't know some of the things that they believe or say are and can be racist. And I think one of the like effective ways is just to talk and kind of help teach them about why some of the things they believe or say or think are wrong. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily racist, but that they're wrong. And that'll sort of like chip away and, you know, contribute to some development in this area, but not necessarily take somebody from, like, being a racist to not being a racist in one conversation. And it's just always being open to learning about racist things that we may have said or done without judgment and defensiveness. Welcome back to Flyover Politics Podcast with Tony Reed. You cannot go around saying you're a bad guy, we're going to assassinate you. 
And then you're going to have, if that happens, you're opening the door to international anarchy. That every government in the world will then be subjected to attacks and assassination. I do want to take this to Vice President Biden next, because we know that the Obama administration was aware of the threat that Soleimani posed, so was the Bush administration before it. I'm asking tonight, as Commander-in-Chief, though, would you have ordered the strike? No, and the reason I wouldn't have ordered the strike, there's no evidence yet of imminent threat that was going to come from him. And while there's still debate about whether or not there was an imminent threat, there is no debate about whether or not Soleimani was a bad actor who was responsible for the deaths of many Americans. Given what you know about Soleimani, if your national security team came to you with an opportunity to strike, would Soleimani have been dead or would he still be alive under your presidency? In the situation that we saw with President Trump's decision, there is no evidence that that made our country safer. Look, uh, I feel very strongly about the campaign of murder and mayhem that General Soleimani and his units have perpetrated. It's also the case that if we learned nothing else from the war in Iraq, it's that taking out a bad guy is not a good idea if you do not know what you were doing. That's all of them. None of them would do it. A, because they're freaking anti-Semites, but they wouldn't do it. They, they, even if they wanted to, they can't say they can, because if they do, they lose the moonbats that they need to get out to vote. I mean, it's so bad, Buttleg was asked 19 foreign policy questions. He didn't answer any of them from the New York Times. He wouldn't, because there's no way to ask or answer that he doesn't piss off somebody in the conglomerate that is the left. One of my favorite of the night is this. I have more blacks with you than you do, because America's racist. And these were white people arguing about their amount of blacks. It, once again, disturbing. In the black community and anybody else. Double would you have or anybody else. But wait a second, wait a second. Point Bernie. Well, that is quite right. Let's not argue about polls. This is not about polls. I'm not talking about polls. Nine members of the black caucus in South Carolina supporting us. But more importantly, have a racist society from top to bottom impacting health care, housing, criminal justice, education, you name it. And clearly this is an issue that must be dealt with. But in terms of criminal justice, what we have got to do is understand the system is broken, is racist. We invest in our young people in jobs and education, not more jails and incarceration. We end the war on drugs, which has disproportionately impacted African Americans, Latinos, and Native Americans. We end private prisons and detention centers in America. A party that says I have more blacks than you really has problems. I mean, they're pandering so hard, they, they can't win with their own people. And I think the only person that gets it is Carville and Van Jones. Before we play Van Jones, Carville got took to task by Vox. Or he had a Vox article. 
Democrats misplaced priorities and media tone deafness in regard to average Americans. Elitism radiates by Dems and their media fluffers will only come back to bite them come election day. That's what he says. Well, for what it's worth, WAPO opinion writer and American prospect senior writer Paul Waldman thinks Carvel's the one who's out of touch. Thank you, James Carvel, for letting us know that dumb Democrats aren't being respectful enough of regular folks. What an insightful take. I've never heard before. If only they could do something like this, victory would be assured. Wow, Paul, great counter-argument to Carvel. We got there. For those who don't know, Paul, he was a charter member of Media Matters Online Trolling, David Brock, Cocaine Supply Group. He then went to work for Plumline, a Washington Post-funded stenographer for the Barack Obama. They don't want to hear it. They just don't want to hear it. Their policies, everything about them, are horrible. And they're not in touch with regular folks. He writes all disrespectfully. So the next op-ed we'll see is about Van Jones. Because he sounds a lot like Carvel. Is this a little late? Might be a little bit late, but I tell you what, it's good to hear some acknowledgement of that because mm. that is a consistent thing. Listen, if you're an African American voter, you understand. I get it. I'm supposed to stand in a five hour long line in the freezing cold in Michigan mm-hmm. so the Democrats can win and then never speak to me again right. for four years. Right. And it's gotten old and tired. And so I think that's, and the other thing that happens within our party is that, you know, we'll spend a billion dollars on an election. 97% of the campaign dollars go to white male owned firms. Mm. And mm. so, you yeah. know, and so again, what is it we're getting out of this relationship? And so I think that's, I think that it can strengthen the African American community overall having the competition, uh, between the two parties. For a long time, the black vote was taken for granted by Democrats mm. and written off by Republicans. Yes. That's not happening this year. Well, <clears throat> I wonder if you think Democrats have also left themselves a little vulnerable. By focusing um, so much on impeachment and investigations, huh? not not unimportant things, but uh, right. <laughs> I wonder, mm. you know, there might have been some more important mm. issues to black voters. Mm. <laughs> you know, uh, I would accuse my party at this point of having engaged in three years of fantasy football politics, mm. where we said, "Okay, don't worry, Trump is never going to be seated." Because the electoral college will not seat him. Remember that? Oh, I do. Oh, oh don't worry, Bob Mueller. It's going to take him out of the White House in handcuffs. Remember that? Yeah, I do. Oh, don't worry. He's going to be impeached and removed. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, after three years of all that fantasy football, guess what we have? Trump is still in the White House, yep. and we still don't have a candidate. And the way we've developed our issues may, may or may not even serve us. Had we spent the past three years accepting reality that you know, a bunch of people who voted for Obama twice voted for Trump, mm. hard to call them Nazis, mm. And listen to them, in addition to our own constituencies, and figured out what they needed, we might be in a position to have Trump on the run. The reality is, uh, all the, the, the blood, sweat, and tears over impeachment, Bob Mueller, all that kind of stuff, has not done anything to dent Trump. Trump is actually higher in the polls than he's ever been, and we still don't have a candidate. Uh, yeah, 
Uh, good to see you. Thanks for coming by. I'm sure we'll have more of this discussion. <laughs> and on that cheery note. <laughs> <laughs> really took the win. Really, it's only that. Uh, and I think this is something that I, I've observed most consistently. And maybe you can explain, all of you can explain it, or none of it you can, which is why do you keep getting caught in a loop of a granular discussion about a policy right. that will only be two lines deep in the uh, general de- election? And, and, and Steyer was... You mean Medicare for all? Me- me- Medicare. Anything about health care is going to be two lines when deep you in the general a- election. A better, bigger plan, right? I mean, well, well, I, I thought I thought Steyer was brilliant in that moment. After another 17 minutes mm-hmm. of the same conversation we have every debate, he just said, "Look, enough. This is not. This is this is irrelevant. How do we beat Trump?" And he did that twice. And he started trending on Twitter. This is the first time that Tom <laughs> Steyer wasn't staring into the camera, and the first time he trended. So maybe he could stop staring into the camera, and maybe he'll trend more. But I thought it was really important. I think a lot of people were where he was. This is about Donald Trump. This is about how you stop Donald Trump, how you beat Donald Trump. And he was trying to make the argument that it's the economy stupid. And I thought that was a really great moment for him. And it was the first time that you saw him taking up all this space. Now, to your point, it, it, you might think, well, why is he up there? He's up there because he's, he's still, he thinks he's got a shot. He thinks he can surprise people in South Carolina with, with his black support. And by the way, people don't know Tom Sire. I've known Tom Sire for 15 years. His commitment on racial justice, social justice, is rock Solid. I mean, as soon as he made his money, he turned to be uh, to put money into causes. He built a bank to help people. I mean, he's he's the real deal, and it shows. And his numbers show that in South Carolina. But I th- but to that point, I think to beat Trump, it ought to reflect as, his spending as, in South Carolina. Yeah, as, as a party, we've got to be more hard headed about this. It's I don't disagree with Tom Steyer's commitment to racial justice or or to any issue. He's not going to be the nominee. And the sooner we narrow it down to three or four and we can really get in and then give someone the opportunity to stop talking about Medicare for all and start talking about pre-existing conditions, you know, lowering prescription drugs. As David said, the reason we won in 2018 were those issues, the better we'll be. But what is the incentive for someone to drop out when they look at the field and don't think anybody's that strong? Well, I think as a party, we've got to decide. You know what I'm saying, though, Axe? I mean, you know, let's say you go to Andrew Yang and you're like, listen, you have some great ideas. Boy, if you lit people on fire uh, online and you built a real coalition, the Yang gang's a real thing, but it's not going to be you. We'd love. Why would he get out? But he's got, but he didn't, we had a, we had a, we had a exercise in democracy in Iowa. And I think Steyer... That's a loose definition. Well, (laughs) I don't think you want to hang it on Iowa. The one thing we want to be sure on is Steyer spent a year in there, and I think he got about 200 people to the caucuses. That tells you something I mean, that should matter. I mean, more. but he has he has less of an incentive to get out because oh. he's got renewable resources right. of his own. Mm-hmm. If you're one of these other candidates, you have to have the resources. And if you begin to look like a candidate who isn't going to make it, it is very hard to raise that money. And that's what everybody's going to be looking at after Tuesday. Like, who who has the wherewithal uh, to go on? It's not just a matter of hanging out. You have right. to be able to actually run a campaign. And it's going to become more serious yeah. come Super Tuesday when you got a guy who's spending a billion dollars right. in there as well. we got to get a break in. Um, and when we come back, remind me of this, because we've all been doing this for 50 phases. I think that's the label that the president's going to lay on everyone running with Bernie if he's a nominee. Now, that is the best argument or criticism uh, against Bernie Sanders at this point, or not. Let's talk a panel about it. Uh, they had the weird moment with the hands up. Uh, who's okay? Who has a problem with uh, socialists at the top of the ticket? Uh, Joe Lockhart and I did the th- steady three count, three Mississippis, uh, before Colbert put her hand up. Um, you know, he's been redefining the word. 
Uh, can it be redefined in a way that works in America? I, I, I don't know if it can, but I will say this. For, for his young supporters, they call themselves socialists, but they really just seem to have, like, grandparent envy. In other words, their grandparents get to see a doctor pretty much for free, and they want to do the same thing. When their grandparents went to college, it cost like $4 a semester, and they want to do the same thing. So like, why do you call yourself socialist? You basically just say, uh, Grandpa and Grandma, I want what you had. That's basically, so the idea that this is some like, socialist revolution or whatever, this is not a socialist revolution of the kind that we heard about in the 60s and 70s, and I think the label does a lot of harm right. when the policies are actually pretty reasonable. Now, look, just to be fair, in the 70s, Bernie Sanders did argue for state ownership of corporations and the industries of commerce. Uh, he said to me in a town hall, I said that to him, and he said, when did I say that? And I said, you said it in the 70s. And he said, well, what were you saying in the 70s? And I said, Google Gaga. And, and you know, he, of course, took no sense of humor. Yes, yes. But, but he wasn't knocked off his feet by it either, Axe. And he was like, look, my ideas have progressed. Uh, and his big hit is then, what did we do for the corporations uh, when they tanked the housing market? You know, what, what do we do for them with you know, bank look, that socialism? Like I said, I think he, he is underestimated. I think if he were the nominee of the Democratic Party, there would be trade-offs. There would be constituencies that the Democratic Party is counting on, including this burgeoning suburban vote, uh, where he would not do uh, as well as many of the other Democratic candidates. And whether he'd pick up some of those white working class voters and excite enough young people who weren't going to vote to come out to make up for what was lost, you know, that, that, that's the equation, but, uh, and we'll see if, if we get there. But, uh, you know, the, the thing about, you're right, Van, that, you know, what he, he's basically, uh, he has a progressive agenda that, that is labeled as, uh, that he's labeled as democratic socialism. But the point is, he has labeled it. Biden was right, and he's, and he is, uh, unrelenting on that, and he calls it, you know, he talks, it's, he calls it a revolution, right. and he says, I'm a democratic socialist. So, you can't blame people for taking right. it, taking, uh, taking think, him at his word. The, for the older generation who, you know, that means. While their politics aren't working, you know, long-time Dems are starting to con just criticize the shit out of them. Tucker Carlson's got a great soundbite. Before I play it, I, I want to read just a few. I could have done about 20 headlines. Illegal alien avoided deportation allegedly smothered 22 elderly people. ICE. 1,500 criminal aliens released from California prisons. Some have already reoffended. California sheriff demands an end to sanctuary laws. Our communities are no longer safe. Perennial drunk driving illegal alien released in Illinois, then arrested by ICE. Guatemalan citizen Yoni Cruz Lopez may only be 24 years old, but he's already racked up three DUI convictions over the past five years in a country that he's not even supposed to be in. Cruz Lopez was under the legal drinking age when he picked up at least one of those convictions. Democrats in Illinois thought it was more important for the illegal alien to get back on the road again rather than to turn the dangerous criminal alien over to ICE. In 2017, a federal immigration judge ordered Cruz Lopez to be removed from the United States after he failed to show up his immigration hearing because most of them don't show up. I mean, their policies catch a release in New York. I mean, Jesus Christ, folks. 
It has consequences. Tucker is talking about a new policy, and it's just as scary. But first, a story that has not received nearly enough attention. In cities across the country, prosecutors and lawmakers are working frantically to make life worse for normal people and easier for thugs and armed robbers. We told you about New York's new bail law, the one that lets criminals back onto the streets immediately after being caught. Not surprisingly, crime has surged. This has shocked nobody except maybe Chris Cuomo's brother, who runs the state and who's responsible for it. Now there's this sad story. In 2018, New York resident Wilmer Rodriguez was brutally assaulted by two members of MS-13 after he tried to protect two boys they were threatening. Rodriguez agreed to testify against his attackers in court, as good citizens do. That decision cost him his life. On Sunday, Rodriguez was beaten to death outside his home. Until recently, Rodriguez would have been protected by New York law, which allowed prosecutors to conceal the names of witnesses until shortly before trial for their safety. But a new law, this one passed to help criminal defendants, required prosecutors to turn over Rodriguez's name to the gang members' lawyers. Almost immediately, gang members started harassing Rodriguez. This week, they killed him. That's what New York is like now. Do the right thing, and you could be murdered by predators the government is determined to protect. Lunacy? Yes, it is lunacy. But it's not confined to New York. In 2018, Nancy Pelosi attacked the president for daring to call MS-13 members animals. According to Pelosi, Trump was more immoral than the gang members he insulted. We're all God's children. There's a spark of divinity in every person on earth. And so when the president of the United States says about undocumented immigrants, these aren't people, these are animals. You have to wonder, does he not believe in the spark of divinity, the dignity and worth of every person? Every day that you think you've seen it all, along comes another manifestation of why their policies are so inhumane. He's a sinner. MS-13 are God's children. Well, Vox did an entire video about how really MS-13 were just misunderstood high school students, decent, hardworking kids maligned by a racist media. When you think of the street gang MS-13, what do you see? Maybe something like this, or this. But what if I told you the typical MS-13 gang member in the U.S. actually looks like one of these young men on Facebook? The MS-13 members that I've been following are working after-school jobs. They're living with their parents. They get around Long Island on bicycles. There's no indication that we're seeing a bigger surge of MS-13 than we've seen in the past. Fox wants you to calm down. It was just a false alarm. Everything's cool. Go back to bed. Those scary MS-13 gang members, just a nightmare. Except they weren't. They're real. MS-13 is an actual organization. It's a massive transnational criminal organization that's left behind a trail of bodies in a number of countries over decades. Three years ago, we traveled to El Salvador to see where it all started. We visited a detention center in San Salvador where suspected MS-13 members are being held before trial. More than 50 men packed in a single cell, their backs to us to avoid being identified. Some seemed barely out of childhood, though in many cases they were covered in gang tattoos, a sign of their total commitment. Before long, some of these guys may wind up in L.A. or Long Island. It's happening now. What was your role in the gang? I was a soldier, a foot soldier. What does that mean? A trigger man. A trigger man. That means that I, that means to kill. 
How old were you when you first killed? I was 15 years old. That was my first homicide. How many people did you kill? I've killed last time. Quite a few. Quite a few. A 15-year-old committing murder. We have those in our country, too. It's a sad fact. It's something we should be both horrified and ashamed of. Crime and violence are the clearest possible signs that a society isn't functioning as it should. If they increase to a certain point, societies don't function at all. And we should be worried about that always. We ought to be doing all that we can to build a place, a country, where people who follow the law are rewarded, those who flout it are punished, and above all, children can live in peace and safety. That used to be obvious. It's not obvious anymore. At this moment, there's a bill pending in the Congress called the New Way Forward Act. It's received almost no publicity, and that's unfortunate, as well as revealing. The legislation is sponsored by 44 House Democrats, including Ilhan Omar and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It's roughly 4,400 words long. That means it's almost exactly as long as the U.S. Constitution. Like the Constitution, it's designed to create a whole new country. The bill would entirely remake our immigration system with the explicit purpose of ensuring that criminals are able to move to the United States and settle here permanently with immunity. Now, you may think we're exaggerating for effect, but we're not exaggerating, not even a little bit. The New Way Forward Act is the single most radical piece of legislation we have ever seen proposed in this country, ever. It makes the Green New Deal look like the status quo. The document produced by Democrats to promote the bill says this, and we're quoting it verbatim, convictions should not lead to deportation, end quote. Now, keep in mind, we're not talking about convictions for double parking or even for DUI. The bill targets felony convictions, serious crimes that could send you to prison for years and should. A press release from Congressman Jesus Garcia of Illinois is explicit about this. Garcia brags that the bill will break the, quote, prison to deportation pipeline, something most of us were for. So how does the bill do that? Well, under current U.S. law, legal U.S. immigrants can be deported if they commit a, quote, aggravated felony or a crime of moral turpitude. That is a vile, depraved act like molesting children. Under the New Way Forward Act, crimes of moral turpitude are eliminated entirely as justification for deportation. And the category of aggravated felony gets eliminated, too. So what does that mean? Consider this. Under current law, immigrants who commit serious crimes, robbery to fraud to child sexual abuse, must be deported regardless of the sentences they receive. Other crimes, less severe ones like racketeering, require deportation if the perpetrator receives at least a one-year sentence. Under this bill, there would no longer be any crime that automatically requires deportation. None. And one crime, falsifying a passport, would be made immune from deportation no matter what. Because apparently 9-11 never even happened, and we no longer care about fake government documents. By the way, if you just renewed your driver's license to comply with the Real ID Act, you must feel like an idiot. Because immigrants are getting a pass, you're not. Under the proposed legislation, for crimes that would still allow deportation, the required prison sentence would rise from one year to five years. We checked the Bureau of Justice statistics. According to federal data, crimes like car theft, fraud, and weapons offenses all carry average prison sentences of fewer than five years. And that's just looking at averages. There are people who commit rape, child abuse, even manslaughter, and get sentences with fewer than five years. Lots of them, actually. If the New Way Forward Act passes, immigrants who commit those crimes and receive those sentences would remain in this country. And, of course, they will be eligible for citizenship day one, too, of course. But even that is understating the law's effect. Even a five-year prison sentence wouldn't necessarily be enough to trigger deportation. The bill would grant sweeping new powers to immigration judges, allowing them to nullify a deportation order. 
The only requirement for that is, quote, the immigration judge finds such an exercise of discretion appropriate in pursuant of humanitarian purposes to assure family unity or when it is otherwise in the public interest. Talk about open-ended. In other words, anti-American immigration judges, and there are a lot of those in this country, would have a blank check to open the borders. You would not be voting on this. It would happen anyway. Is this shocking you yet? Because we're just getting started. We read this proposed legislation. Here's another point. Current U.S. law makes drug addiction grounds for deportation because why wouldn't it? This bill would eliminate that statute. Current law also states that those who have committed drug crimes abroad or, quote, any crimes involving involving moral turpitude are ineligible to immigrate here. The New Way Forward Act abolishes that statute. So a Mexican drug cartel leader could be released from prison, then freely come to America immediately. And if he wants, he could come here illegally, and it still wouldn't be a crime because, and you were waiting for this part, the bill also decriminalizes illegal entry into America, even by those we've previously deported. In other words, you break our law, we send you out, you come back, you break it again, you can stay. According to a document promoting this bill, Criminalizing illegal entry into America is, quote, white supremacist. That's a quote, white supremacist. Now, by this point, you're beginning to wonder, are we making this up? We're not making it up. In fact, we're barely halfway through the bill. The legislation doesn't just make it harder to deport illegal immigrants who commit crimes. It doesn't just make it easier for criminals to move here illegally, though it does both. The bill would also effectively abolish all existing enforcement against illegal immigration. To detain illegal immigrants, ICE would have to prove in court that they are dangerous or a flight risk. But, of course, ICE wouldn't be allowed to use a detainee's prior criminal behavior as proof of danger. That's banned. ICE would have to overcome even more hurdles if the detainee claims to be gay or transgendered. If they're under 21 or if they can't speak English and an interpreter isn't immediately available, they get a pass. In other words, it would be much harder to arrest an illegal alien in this country than it is to arrest you. They're the protected class here. You're just some loser who's paying for it all. But believe it or not, we save the nuttiest part of this legislation for last. And here's what it is. What could be more destructive than changing U.S. law specifically to allow rapists, child molesters, and drug dealers to stay in America? How about this? Using taxpayer money to bring deported criminals back into America. That's right. This bill would not only abolish your right to control who lives in your country... But it invents a brand new right, quote, the right to come home. It orders the government to create a, quote, pathway for those previously deported to apply to return to their homes and families in the United States, as long as they would have been eligible to stay under the new law. It's retroactive, in other words. DHS must spend taxpayer dollars transporting convicted criminal illegal aliens back into the United States. Not making this up. So who would be eligible for these flights? Tens of thousands of people we kicked out of this country for all kinds of crimes. Sexual abuse, robbery, assault, drug trafficking, weapons trafficking, human trafficking. From 2002 to 2018, 480,000 people were deported for illegal entry or re-entry into America. And under this bill, you'd have to buy each of them a plane ticket to come home. Those tickets alone would cost about a billion dollars. And that's before Democrats make you start paying for these criminals free health care, too, which they plan to do and have said so. The New Way Forward Act fundamentally inverts every assumption you have about this country. Under this legislation, the criminals are now the victims. Law enforcement is illegitimate. It's racist, just like the country you live in, just like you are. 
And the only solution is to get rid of both. America would be better off as a borderless rest stop for the world's predators and parasites. That's the point of this. And we're not overstating. Go read it. This is a big deal. This is not a small thing. This is not renaming a post office. It's hard to believe any American would put these ideas on paper, much less try to pass them into law. And yet, remarkably, that's happening. And even more remarkably, the press has ignored it. This isn't happening in secret. It's happening in the House of Representatives. Scores of Democrats have backed this bill. But the legislation has not been mentioned in the New York Times. It has been mentioned on CNN, a news channel, or even in self-described conservative outlets like National Review. No mention. Consider if this were working the other way. If a lone, I don't know, Republican state legislator from Minot, North Dakota, had proposed to build this extreme that would remake America completely, the president himself would be expected to answer for it. CNN would demand that he disavow it, even if he'd never heard of it before. But when one-fifth of the entire Democratic caucus backs a bill demanding that you import illegal alien felons and then pay for it, it's a non-event in the American media. They don't think you should know about it. And that's dangerous, if we're being honest. Whether the press cares or not, these are the stakes of the 2020 elections, and you have a right to know what they are. A growing wing of the Democratic Party views America itself as essentially illegitimate, a rogue state in which everything must be destroyed and remade. Our laws, our institutions, our customs, our freedoms, our history, our values. And of course, that's the point of all of this. An entirely new country in which resistance is crushed and they're in charge forever. It's fucking criminal, man. It's fucking criminal. They're just not good. They're not a good party. I don't know how anybody votes for them. Here's a couple more. Um, Joy Reid says what everybody's saying about Bernie and socialism. And Graham to CBS Media. The media is in the tank for Biden. But when you talk to people over 30, people maybe even over 40, even more so, they hear socialism or democratic socialism. They don't even hear the democratic part. They just hear socialism. You saw the the Chris Matthews moment the other night where he, you know, he represents a lot of voters who they hear that word and they say, absolutely not. Yes. Is the campaign prepared with a message to counter when the Trump team, if he gets the nomination, and then the Trump team starts playing video of him praising Fidel Castro, yes. and the Trump team starts playing video of him praising Russia's uh, social services, but the ads are, are going to be... The ads are going to be but wait ads. On, The ads are going to be true. <laughs> They're going to be actual... So we, you're, what the job of the Democratic nominee is going to be to keep the 65 million people who voted for Hillary Clinton, right. add another 100,000 people in the key states. That's right. But in order to... Right? That's all you got to do. It's but, unite the party and grow right. the okay, party. Okay, so let's talk yes. about those things. Yes. Number one... Um, if, if the idea is that you guys are going to run on an affirmative defense of socialism, you, Florida's off the table. I mean, you, she didn't win Florida, but you're not going to get Florida. So let's, you're going to have to win up with a smaller map. I'm just telling you that there are voters who you're going to... We're lose. not going to write you're anything off, keep, to be honest right, with you. But you're not going right. to keep all 65 million people. There are right. just some people who, for whatever reason, whether they're right or wrong, are not going to vote for a socialist period. So they- However, um, when you're talking about being asked to do these things and a channel being opened between Rudy Giuliani and the Justice Department. This sounds a lot like this is in some ways a taxpayer funded oppo research operation against Joe Biden. Isn't this exactly what was at the heart of the Uh, impeachment probe to begin with? No, not at all. There are plenty of 
people being contacted by folks from the Ukraine. Adam Schiff got contacted by somebody he thought to be a Russian. He was willing to get on a plane, apparently, and go find the documents. Schumer believes that Parnas has got the goods. Parnas says, I'm in on it. I've never met Parnas. So Democrats are being played, and I'm not going to be played. So we're going to look at the Hunter Biden, Joe Biden connection to the Ukraine. We're going to ask the State Department, why didn't you do something about the conflict of interest? Mm -hmm. When the uh, John Kerry's chief of staff was warned about Hunter Biden's conflict on Burisma, right. what did you do, if anything? That's all legitimate. Rudy says he's got the goods. All I can tell Rudy and anybody else, if you got some information connected to the Ukraine against anybody, go to the Intel Committee, not me. Yeah, you don't want a part of it right now. We need to finish this conversation because okay. you brought up a number of things. So we're going to have to take a quick break. I do want to, to say, though, that uh, to this point, nothing has been in any way substantiated in regard to corruption when it comes to Joe Biden himself. His son served on the board and was paid for I it. just think the media is so in the tank over this issue, it makes no, me sick to my stomach. You just we'll said, talk about it in a minute. Right, but you were saying it needs to be investigated. Yeah, nobody's investigated. No CBS hasn't sent one reporter. To Ukraine? Yeah, I don't think you take it seriously. We are. That's why we're taking a break, and I'm coming back to talk to you about Good. it on the other side Good. of it. So stay with us, all of you. Good. Senator Graham is going to stay with us. We'll continue in a few moments. But as we started it, we'll end this half of today's podcast. New York Times chronicles leftist demoralization over failed Trump supporter conversions. This is how out of touch they are. Substitute deplorables for people, and you have an attitude of not only the resistance in western Pennsylvania desperately trying but failing to convert Trump supporters, but of Campbell Robertson in his New York Times article, which chronicled the futility of their effort. It is obvious upon reading the article that liberal political conversion therapy is just not working. You get the sense of the futile nature of their task by reading the Thursday article title, In Trump Country, the Resistance Meets the Steel Curtain. As well as subtle, anti-Trump forces are still hard at work in deeply conservative areas, but the heady expectations of changing minds are getting harder to sustain. Robertson takes us deep in the heart of darkness of deplorable country in western Pennsylvania, where the supposedly enlightened resistance are demoralized over the resistance of the local yahoos to their message. Three years ago, when hundreds of thousands of people took to the streets in protest... Uh, Mr. Trump, the resistance seemed immense. Two years ago, when legions of canvassers and postcard writers helped flip dozens of congressional seats nationwide, it proved effective. Now, with the 2020 election approaching, the Democratic Party seems as disjointed as ever, while the Trump administration appears not only undismayed, but emboldened. And veterans of the four-year-old resistance, particularly in places where they remain outnumbered, are facing up to an unwelcome truth. This is going to be even harder than it once looked. Meetings are packed. Protesters still gather on freezing sidewalks. And the big picture is repeated like a mantra. The gold is building a solid political infrastructure that will pay off in the long run. But in the back of the crowded community rooms, activists murmur nervously about discord among the Democrats. The unshakable enthusiasm of Trump faithful and the nagging suspicion that the mission of winning converts and allies might have reached its limits. And it's true. Pam Morn, 65, who was spending a weekend, weeknight with a dozen other women at a canvassing training session southeast of Pittsburgh. 
I'm less optimistic, she said, still sour from watching the news earlier in the day. It's exhausting emotionally and mentally, but you have to keep going. Please don't forget to blame the Russians again after the election. Once a bastion of union power, rural western Pennsylvania has been veering rightward for years, a shift that went into overdrive with Trump. After the 2016 election, small Democratic groups began spouting up all over, many started by mid- and late-career women who have done little, if any, political work before. In Panera Boots, far from the blue Pittsburgh, they were elated to find others who thought like them. Surely there had to be more, if not other Democrats, at least Republicans, turned off by the president. He's losing his vote base, thought Christina Proctor, 42. When she joined the ranks of the newly energized in Washington County, she had been alarmed by the local further for Trump in the run-up to the 2016 election, but in the months that followed, she thought this allegiance was flagging. She does not think that anymore. They're 100% on board, she said. Trying to perpetuate a phony impeachment sure didn't help. It just made his supporters remain 100% on board. On Wednesday evening last week, as senators and other Washington argued about calling witnesses in the impeachment trial, the new leader of the local Democratic Committee in Washington, PA, sat in their headquarters debating whether they had reached the limit of people in the county who were still persuadable. Sorry, no more persuadable deplorables. And one reason why is they might not appreciate being condescended to as if they were political, trainable lab rats. How did you think you could turn people by insulting them, attacking them, and saying, your vote doesn't count, we're going to overturn the Electoral College? Where does this work? Anywhere. Where? It's unfucking believable that you thought this was going to work. You are violent fascists who try to shut out opposing views. That's not America. So, this wraps up the first half. We're going to go out without my ending music, but a great soundbite of Nancy Pelosi's daughter and some reporter. It got pretty heated. And once again, download the next one because it's the fun shit. Not initially, because Military Corner, we have some people killed. Uh, green on blue. It's not good. But the rest of it, wow. A lot of crazy out there. See you on the other side. I tore up a manifesto of mistruths. And I don't need any lessons from anybody especially the President of the United States, about dignity. I think it was completely, entirely appropriate. The ongoing feud between President Trump and Nancy Pelosi boiling over today. The two traded more barbs through the media. They have not spoken in months, and there doesn't appear to be any thaw coming. President Trump blasted Nancy Pelosi during the National Prayer Breakfast, held up a newspaper heralding his acquittal as, speaker, as the Speaker of the House sat just feet away, feet away, and later at a celebratory speech in the East Room of the President, of the White House, I should say, the president took aim once again. Nancy Pelosi is a horrible person. And she wanted to impeach a long time ago when she said, I pray for the president. I pray for the president. She doesn't pray. She may pray, but she prays for the opposite. <laughs> but I doubt she prays at all. All right. 
Here now exclusively Christine Pelosi, the daughter of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and the author of The Nancy Pelosi Way. Christine, thank you for being here tonight. Uh, you know, you. I, I think, first of all, I just want to get your reaction when you saw the speaker rip up those pages very intentionally, you know, one, two, three in front of the cameras. What was your reaction? Did you know she was going to do that? No idea she's going to do that. I think Nancy Pelosi is a wonderful person. I know she prays daily, including for the president, including for the country, as we've talked before. And in watching that, uh, her reaction to that speech, I thought to myself, that's an Italian grandma move. I saw my grandmother do that years ago um, in her kitchen uh, when there was a guest who had been at my grandfather's house, uh, very rude to him. She just simply picked up the person's plate without comment, went into the kitchen. We heard a little crashing sound. She threw the plate away, mm. came back, sat down, didn't say another word. So to me, I thought that's, thought it was that's Italian grandma. Well, I thought it was an yeah. Italian grandma move. I think that's. So she said she said it was the most courteous thing that she said it was. Let me ask you, the most courteous thing I could do. She said, given my other exuberances, what did she mean? What were her other exuberances? What would have been worse than that? Well, I think plenty of things would have been worse than that. I mean, for example, he could have put his outstretched hand towards her and she could have refused to shake it, which um, surprised me when I first watched the speech. I thought, well, wait, where are her hands out there? Why isn't he shaking her hand? When you hear someone give a speech in front of you and say things that you know to be untrue, he says he's protecting people's care. And I know Kelly and Conway just repeated that. But the fact of the matter is he's in court suing to overturn the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. He is in court trying to uphold um, rules that will that will uh, change that he just did that will change the definition of a public charge that will hurt immigrants like his own father well, they have who came differences. in. There's no doubt that. about that. But well, let me but ask if you this. lie Christine, about what the, no. di- what the what you're doing, that's not that, a policy. Difference. But you know that's what? I have watched State of the Union addresses my whole life, as I know you have too. Uh, there are always there. presidents who stand up there and who talk about their policies. There are always people in the audience, including speakers of the House of, op- of the opposite party, who don't agree that they are saying uh, what they see as the, the more effective policy. They have different views on the way to fix health care in this country. It doesn't mean that you... you rip up the speech. I mean, you, it generally, my whole life, people have sat there respectfully and listened to each other. That's part of what happens at the State of the Union address. And and frankly, you know, I just, I, I thought it was surprising. I mean, I, I was with a, a panel of people, Democrats, Republicans, and, and everybody, you know, thought, wow, that was, um, that was a surprising move. And, and that was one it of the was. nicer words that was used for it. Well, that was your panel of people. I was with hundreds of people last night who loved it and thought, thank I'm God sure somebody true. with a flick no, of I'm the wrist. Sure. I, I, I know that sentiment resistance. Is, is out there as well. I'm just, oh, it's I'm just out saying. there for sure. So, yes, so how about Martha, this comment? to your point though. Yeah. It, it's not a matter of saying you and I can disagree. Right. We're both speaking the truth. It's a different thing. If I say there's a lawsuit, um, to overturn the law, and at the same time I say I'm defending the law, I am lying. Yeah, but, that, but, there, the that is, that is but their argument is that the, the lawsuit there. to overturn the law is to, is to allow a, be- a system that, that they think would be better to protect people and would provide better coverage in the end because they think that that law is not effective so far in doing so. So that, to me, is a policy difference. It's, it's yes, we're trying to do this because we want to overturn that, and that's a policy difference. I don't, I don't see it as, as lies, but maybe we just have a different way of, of you know, listening to, to both sides here. Um, I just want to play this other, this other, uh, mm. this other soundbite here um, from the speaker about thinking that the president was sedated. Watch this. It's also an act of kindness because he looked to me like he was a little sedated. 
he looked that way last year, too. But he didn't want to shake hands. That was that. That meant nothing to me. It had nothing to do with my tearing up. So, I mean, what did, I'm just curious what your take is on that. I, when I heard that, I thought, well, I think she thought well, he was yeah, going back to what we. No, I th- well, I think who I, I actually thought he had a cold this morning. I didn't know what what, what that oh. remark was. Maybe he was maybe he had a cold last night, too. I actually thought he sounded like he had a cold this morning. But in any event, mm-hmm. I think there's two things. One is, um, I thought you were going to play the part where he said uh, um, all the things that he said about Mitt Romney's faith, which I thought was bizarre, because I remember in 2012 um, Mitt Romney talking about his faith quite a lot at the Republican convention, so I don't think it was new and I don't think it was a crutch. Yeah. Again, well, going a back lot of people to... Thought that a lot of that back and forth was over the line. Well, um, well, again, I think there's a couple of things going on here. On both sides. First of all, the House of Representatives has the power. If they want to get something passed, they have to go through the House of Representatives. So sooner or later, he's going to have to go back there. That's how the trade deal got done after the House of Representatives right. made it better, working with labor. You want to get something done on health care. You want to get something done on the budget. Yeah. Um, th- th- he will eventually have to go half- back to the House of Representatives to make something Absolutely happen. True. So we uh, will, let me ask we you will one, wait to see what, what, that, what those dynamics are true. then. But it's important to note that when the budget comes out, the numbers don't lie. And so the numbers are going to have to, re- that's where the stark reality is going to be. That okay. proof will be in the pudding. If they right, really well, want to we'll do something on health care and infrastructure, let's look I, at the budget I, I and see if our statement of our values. All Americans would like to see happen on both fronts. So I hope, I hope that's true. One last question for you. Let, let's put it this sure. Gallup poll. Um, during the course of impeachment, uh, the president's approval rating went up 10 points. Um, does that, you know, I, I mean, I think that would lead to some frustration on the part of those who pursued it for whatever reasons they pursued it. Does that, what do you think about that? Well, a couple of things. I saw that Gallup poll. It's more heavily weighted now towards Republicans than it was before. So if you look at the breakdown of the numbers, they're different and that could be where the numbers are. But the people who decided to go forward with the impeachment inquiry and with the impeachment were very, very clear. This isn't about the polls. This is about the truth. This is about finding the truth. And this is about making sure that we say Article 2 constrains the president. It doesn't mean he can say he can do whatever he wants. And so mm-hmm. what we're talking about um, as we go forward, and listen, our our voters, they want to hear about health care. They want to hear about health care. They want but, to be assured but, that but the, the president is the going House to be said in the beginning of this process that we shouldn't do impeachment because it will be too divisive. Now, I have to believe she looks at these numbers and says, see, to her to her caucus, I told you this was going to be a mistake. And it is. His numbers have gone up during this process. It's not a mistake to stand up for America. It's not a mistake to stand up for the truth. It's not. A, and again, you're looking at one poll. Liberal politics average has him going up one point, not several. Again, you're looking at a weighted poll that has more Republicans oh, in it now than and just rattled through a whole bunch of numbers that, that are, are positive over and, the course and, of this. And Gallup, yeah, all in that same uh, weighted right, so poll. You, you so, okay. But but the point is, we'll see. whether it is or is it isn't, the most important poll is going to be on Election Day, Absolutely. November 3rd. And the Absolutely. question is going to be, are we going to move forward and have a president uh, you know, of a different mm-hmm. party who's going to bring us together and protect our health care, or are we going to have four more well, years of Donald Trump? At this Trump? point, we one thing see. that we do know is that uh, the people will decide, and uh, that yes. will happen in nine months. Uh, Christine Pelosi, thank you. We appreciate you coming in.